Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Episode 7, Funny Books. Greetings and salutations to the seventh episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. I'm your guide on this gamble through gothic romance, Stella. And with me on one part of this episode is one of my friends, maybe a good friend, uh, he has various names, so I'll just throw all of them out there for you right now. Harrison, Harry, Harold, the Fishman, shoot. Welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I am uh, grateful to be here. Um, I am an amateur media critic and podcaster. I guess that's my that's my relevant CV. Hopefully that's enough. We'll see. We'll see. I just wanted to throw out there, of course, who my guest is. We'll put him through. There's really only one question I have to ask for any guest that's on, so I'll ask him that. But there's a reason why he's on here, and I'll get to that, of course. Before I go any farther, though, I just want to remind you that there is no continuity for this particular show. And if you don't know who this guy is or why we may or may not be friends, that's okay, because that's, you know, a different continuity altogether anyways. But remember that maybe go back to episode one just to get a sense of what Jane Eyre is, and then you can always hop around on this show and, and find any sort of medium or media that you like. And this in particular, we're looking at the visual media, but not moving. It is in print, so looking at graphic novels and manga, and I'm super excited about this. But it's kind of the one episode that I wish I would have done on Zoom to have images pop up as I'm talking, but oh well, you'll just have to imagine what it's like, and if you like what we talk about, go out and actually get this, uh, these works for yourself. So the reason why I've got Harry on is because uh, the graphic novel came out in 2017, and I had actually, I didn't even know it wasn't on my radar. But uh, David Ace Gutierrez, a.k.a. the owner and operator of Katana Banana, the, the fruit sand, he said, hey, have you heard of this? And I didn't, and I immediately went out and got it, I think, from Comixology. And I read it, and then I'll, I'll let you know whether I liked it or not. And I knew I wanted to redo it for this show. 
And afterwards, as I'm looking at the bios of the author and the illustrator, I'm noticing, oh, my, what is it? My <laughs> something ex-girlfriend? <laughs> crazy ex-girlfriend. My crazy no, uh... ex-girlfriend, right. Yeah. I've never seen that show, but I knew of it, and I also know that Harry loves that show and is a fan of the writer, and so there's that connection there. So I thought, well, it would be interesting to have someone on who is a fan of this writer and who also is a fan of good storytelling, and we've had good conversations about that, and just to come at analyzing this work from two different angles. You know, my angle, of course, is Jane Eyre, and his angle is from the writer's perspective as well as being a, a fan of that. So that's why I've called upon him for that. But, you know, it's more important your level of expertise with Jane Eyre. So really, I mean, this is I'm about to hang up on you or we can continue with the call. But did you have you ever read Jane Eyre? I have not read Jane Eyre. <laughs> OK, well, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you for Darn being it. on the show. For, no. no, 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 it's OK. I figured that this would probably be true. What would you say on a scale from zero to ten? is your knowledge of the story of Jane Eyre. One. Where 10 is you could be a scholar, and <laughs> zero is like, I don't even know. I mean, I guess it's about a girl named Jane Eyre. That's basically it. Well, this was not a case like The Great Gatsby, where for the longest time I was of the assumption that Gatsby referred to a small child, possibly a girl. When it's <laughs> wow, okay. I don't know. I mean, you just have some of these books that you know the titles of, but you didn't weren't required to read in school. So they just they've always just been a mystery to me, you know, like half of Shakespeare or what have you. Well, before I answer, which is to say the answer is perhaps one out of ten. Mm -hmm. I mean, where would you rate yourself? Yeah, definitely not a ten. I would say I'm pretty sh maybe like seven or eight. Really? Do you think it should be higher? I, I kind of do. I mean, who else? <laughs> has this podcast who probably someone else has this podcast <laughs> well someone else is probably you know just analyzing the text itself but even now i'm trying to think of the date that it was published and embarrassingly i was on a fire and water network show and they were talking about dear reader and jane Eyre and asked you know when was it published and i'm just like there were crickets because oh. that's just yeah i just hadn't it's not it wasn't a, a detail or a factoid that was kind of lodged in the memory bank so i just thought that's so embarrassing now no one's going to think that i have any authority on the subject whatsoever <laughs> so that's why it's probably a seven or eight because i think i know a lot of details about the plot and can do lots of analysis but maybe that sort of factoid or things on charlotte and her family i wouldn't be able to to tell you about too well very humble. I, I would actually consider myself in the same boat when it comes to the show that you mentioned, The Craziest Girlfriend, because I think for a time I was one of the the most famous fans just because I had a YouTube channel that was the most successful thing I'd ever done online. Oh. But, you know, I, I feel like people dedicate more academic research to, to these things. Perhaps there are Jane Eyre scholars who could write that down on a piece of paper and it would be sort of official somehow or you know put it on their wall as a what do you call those things uh never mind um but you know i i understand what you mean so perhaps if you knew the date that the book was written it would you could bump it up to a nine <laughs> yeah yes yeah even now i like i think i know what the date is but i i don't want to throw it out i don't even want to do it right now <laughs> 
So, yes, we are doing this. It's just called Jane, which is a graphic novel that was published by Archaea, which is a division of Boom Entertainment, Inc., in 2017, as I said. And it is written by Aline Brosh McKenna. And then I've pulled up her biography according to her uh, at the back of this graphic novel where it says she is an award-winning filmmaker and one of the highest grossing female screenwriters of all time, which when I read that gave me pause. (laughs) Yes. McKenna is best known for the film adaptation of the popular novel The Devil Wears Prada. The screenplay is considered a modern classic filled with memorable and oft-quoted lines and features one of Meryl Streep's signature roles as the imperious magazine editor Miranda Priestly. In 2006, McKenna garnered Writers Guild, BAFTA, and Scripter Award nominations for the worldwide box office hit. In 2004, McKenna added television to her resume when she co-created the critically acclaimed Emmy award-winning CW series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I heard actually when I was doing some research on her because I have a question to ask you, which you may or may not know. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I will. It's, I guess she originally had shopped it out to Showtime and was pretty close to getting a deal with Showtime. And then they balked and, and decided not to. And so she had to kind of change it up a bit and then sell it off to the CW. Mm-hmm. They, Can you they imagine sh- what that would be like on Showtime? Yes, actually, because the pilot that they shot was for Showtime. So oh. when it when they just bumped it over to the CW, they just cut out a few things. Okay. Um, so it's very similar, but uh, obviously with no bad words in it. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess it would be just slightly risque, more risque. Mm-hmm. As showrunner, head writer, and executive producer since its inception, she is currently leading the program into its third season, which now it's by now it's canceled, right? Oh, ended, yes. Yes. McKenna also directed the season one finale and directed and wrote the season two finale of the show, and she created the series with its star Rachel Bloom. McKenna's feature film credits include the worldwide hit and perennial favorite <laughs> perennial wedding favorite 27 dresses which is okay uh starring katherine heigl morning glory which actually is a really good film i do recommend that starring rachel mcadams and harrison ford the cameron crow directed matt damon's star we bought a zoo and her adaptation of the musical annie which i guess right. is probably the one where yes cameron diaz is this the version of cameron diaz playing mrs hannigan Perhaps I I feel like uh, this or one was controversial it? because it was sort of black. Yeah, it wasn't Jamie Foxx or something. Yes, that's okay. right. Okay, it was acclaimed for its diverse cast and unique approach to updating the Broadway classic. I guess that's one way to put it. No, there you go. And then our artist, uh, Ramon K. Perez, is the multiple Eisner and Harvey Award winning cartoonist, best known for his graphic novel adaptation of Jim Henson's Tale of Sand. Other lauded sequential works include Nova, All New Hawkeye, The Amazing Spider-Man, Learning to Crawl, John Carter, The Gods of Mars, Wolverine, and The X-Men, and creator-owned endeavors Butternut Squash and Kukuburi. <laughs> Outside of comics, Ramon's work can be found in classic RPGs and CCGs and in various editorial book and advertising illustration. Ramon resides in Toronto in a horse house with his three plants and Boba Fett. So I What's don't know how Fett? he's lasted this long living with Boba Fett, but he's <laughs> doing okay. Uh, and then it's colored by Irma Navilla and with Ramon Kane Perez and lettered by Darren Bennett. Okay, so I will give a very brief plot synopsis. 
Jane is, which we're going to talk about a bit. So she's an orphaned girl. She's very much in the background of her school and just life, but we don't get to see too much of that. And she's earning money. She's fit on a fishing boat, basically cleaning fish and things like that. And she's earning enough money to move to New York City because art is her big ticket out of there. And she gets a scholarship to this particular school, but it is dependent on her having a job. So, she, of course, she becomes the nanny of a rich and <laughs> lonely kid named Adele. Adele's mom and Mr. Rochester, of course, Edward Rochester is her father. Adele's mother, whose name is Isabel, not Bertha, is dead. And Adele's father, Edward, he's not really home at all. And, and even if he is home, he's very apart from, he, he's very separated from Adele's life. He, he doesn't have much of a presence there. And they also have a housekeeper that kind of lurks around named Magda. <laughs> she doesn't do too much. No. And there's also a door that Jane is, and really any nanny is forbidden to touch. Just go, don't go up on that floor. Don't touch that door. Adele has had a lot of nannies because either they could be just creeped out the whole situation, or we've also explicitly been told that they have often touched that door and then they immediately get sacked. So Jane considers quitting several times, but she really can't bring herself to leave Adele. So that is her, her reason for staying there. And she just identifies with her, I think, because of their shared experience of being without a parent or, in Jane's case, parents. She does warm up to Edward and, and vice versa. She really pushes him to become more involved in Adele's life. And I think he sees that Jane is a worthwhile nanny for Adele. Jane does fall in love with Rochester. And <laughs> it kind of seems like he may also have feelings for her. They do begin some sort of relationship, but it, it's hard to tell if it's if it's just that one moment on the boat, which we will certainly talk about. But they do have wonderful outings as if they are a family with Adele. So that's kind of more where we see that relationship grow. And then we only see Jane and Edward in a couple particular circumstances. So he leaves at one point, basically after this romantic night on a boat, and he's gone for months, and Jane is asked to live there and basically be a full-time nanny while doing her art classes, which I don't know how she pulls it off. And he ends up coming home after months and has this other woman who is clearly the Blanche Ingram stand-in, and... That's a very weird circumstance because he says, you know, it's not what it looks like. And then later on he says, you know, it's a bit complicated. But she is ready to break up with him. There's a home invasion that happens immediately. <laughs> and during this home invasion, she actually realizes that Isabel, his supposedly dead wife, is on life support behind that door that is not supposed to be touched. So... The backstory with this is that Isabel took a bullet f that was meant for Rochester, and there was some sort of conspiracy against him, which we'll find out later. And he keeps hoping doctors will be able to save her, but he keeps her existence a secret from both 
Adele so that, you know, she's protected from potential disappointment. And also, I haven't even mentioned this guy, Richard Mason, who is Isabel's brother. So he doesn't know either. And he, Edward and Mason are partners. Mason is very much in this adaptation, the point person for Jane. She can ask him questions about Edward and try to figure things out and whether she should stay. And he's kind of the nice guy that that's like, yeah, you know, he's just like that. You are a great influence on Adele, you should say, that kind of thing. So for whatever reason, (laughs) Rochester and Adele as well as Isabel end up on an island. I don't know. And Mason at one point tries to talk to Jane and figure out, you know, what had happened, why are they away, and what had happened but Jane says I don't know and does not reveal anything about Isabel she's pretty upset with this deception so she ends up finding Edward on this island and saying hey I lied for you and Mason actually with a bunch of minions follows her gets to this island we find out that he is the one who shot his sister accidentally because he was trying to kill Rochester and he's really upset that Rochester hid his sister's condition and the fact that she's still alive from him. And there's this big climactic fight. The house on the island is set ablaze. Adele luckily had already been rushed outside, but Jane ends up, for whatever reason, wanting to stay with Mason and Edward during this whole thing. There's some sort of incest or like at least desired incest on the part of Richard and he just wants to be with his sister and so he ends up trying to kill Edward they fall out of a window which Harry and I have some (laughs) we have some history with people falling out of windows to be sure yes and they are now the men have fallen out of the window they are collapsed on the ground i think mason might die from that actually and edward is you know he's a bit woozy and it's up to jane to carry this woman's body <laughs> out of the burning house and she does and then she collapses Isabel ends up dying i do have a question about that of course and jane nearly dies but we don't know how and that's basically that seems what it, what it is that's that's the end of that story. But then Jane actually, she goes her own way. She continues on with art school. There had been this entire subplot of this big exhibit coming up and the teacher who's really hard-nosed was going to pick particular works. And Jane was just never showing her potential. And then all of a sudden the teacher's like, this is, you've really showed me something here, which is an image of a shipwrecked boat, which really harkens back to her in the open sea, which really harkens back to her history. So that gets pick for the exhibit and Rochester and Adele actually go and see this uh, art gallery showing and it seems like maybe there's a future for them so that's basically (laughs) what Jane is okay so over on a I don't know a rival podcast network and a podcast I do with Tom called required reading we always ask each other whether we liked the work first off before we get into our discussion. So Harry, did you like Jane? A <laughs> new. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm proud of you for not saying maybe, maybe and actually depends. having it out. Okay. 
If you liked it, perhaps. Uh, yes. <laughs> that was such an interesting way to say no. Okay, were you nervous about saying no on this show? Uh, not really, because I, I mean, well, just based on the way you were describing the story, I was also getting the sense that perhaps you did not like it that much either. But I also feel like even if you did, that you are emotionally mature enough not to be sort of uh, frustrated by somebody's converse or adverse opinion and i am hopefully aware enough spatially to not come off as offensive in negative critique that's my hope anyway yeah i think i think we will we'll, we'll come together and i said this off air too to harry that obviously which i said on air that he and i are coming at this work i think in two different ways but i had a sense that we would meet in the middle somehow i will say that i didn't not like it a great deal. Well, me, maybe I won't start that way. I will say that I remember in 2017 when I read it, I didn't care for it a great deal. And this second time that I have read it, I think because of all the other adaptations that are sort of swarming in my mind, I liked it a bit more and I felt like I got more out of it. But I think that there are some weak story points, some things that like don't jive together that make it a, a weaker story than it had its had a potential to be. And that's unfortunately, that's the the thing that you have going against you when you are adapting such a beloved and, and well-known novel as Jane Eyre, you got a lot riding on it. And I think Aline being such a well-known and apparently one of the most prominent female screenwriters of all time, there, there was a lot of pressure there as well. So I think just some things didn't translate, but there were some interesting moments as well. But I, w well, We'll get into something that I think it bothered me a great deal the first time I read it, and it didn't really change, I think, this time. And I'd like to hear what you have to say, because I think that you and Donovan on your own show have talked about such things. Hmm. Before we even get into the story, though, I did want to talk about the art. And I think it's something that may pop up frequently when we're discussing the story and just how things are playing out and laid out. But just to talk about the cover itself, which I've done for, I think the majority of my adaptations, whether they're books or not, you get a, I think you get a good idea of what this uh, <laughs> potentially could be about. I don't know. You've got this young girl. She's in a uniform, it appears, and she's sketching in a sketchbook. And then you've got two bags, basically. One looks actually like a portfolio and then uh, a suitcase. So for the most part, you're like, oh, well, you know, it's a girl who enjoys drawing and it looks like she's gone to the big city. The actual art, though. I really liked the art, actually. I thought that it was a big point for me, uh, a big plus. I like how it transitions from, in her past, black and white. There are no inks. It's really just all pencils. And then as she leaves her home and goes to New York City, you now still have black and white. You've got the inks added, and you have splashes of color just in certain parts, and then the only fully colored thing is Jane, and then the whole thing turns into color, which I just really liked that transition as we actually see Jane, because we don't see her face until, what page is this? Page 19? You just yeah. kind of see her 
yeah, turned away. You see the silhouette of her, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then throughout the, the story has moments of uh, mute colors or and it highlights something that might be important. Like when all the nannies are picking the children up at school, they're all beige, but Jane is actually fully colored. Or setting a particular tone for a scene, like the, I call it the interrogation of Jane, where Edward is asking her all those questions in front of the, the fire. And everything is just awash in, in reds and yellows. But I would say that this is the best part of the graphic novel is the art. But that's my opinion. What do you think about the art and Ramon's style? I should first say that I am also not a uh, comics expert, I, I suppose. I would rate a little bit higher than a one on that scale, but not by much. So anything that I say must be taken with a, a grain. <laughs> and I I don't know. I, I found it very messy. There's a lot of situations where the gutters are kind of like chipped in with a, you know, pen, appears to be pencil that kind of bleeds over from the panels. So you might be able to imagine it. It reminds me a lot of the Photoshop filters, kind of like, I don't know if it's photocopy or plastic wrap, but something that you'd apply to a picture and it, it gives it a very specific look. And I believe at least one of the uh, splash screen or splash pages is an image of perhaps Times Square, but with that filter applied so that the artist didn't have to render a city whose image has been rendered millions and millions of times before. So there's a bit of that mixed media. I agree. I I, I did kind of like the, the element of color. Uh, I was a little worried in the beginning because it was very light pencil and thinking like okay so this is about a girl who sees the world as just deathly dull except for her perhaps but no that it was something a little bit different than that so i don't know i i guess it's a little bit uh negative for me but i don't know I, it's not something that i can can really speak to i don't think okay so i've laid out our discussion our questions mainly based by character so each character i've got Kind of a set of questions and it also gets into story points and there's some overlap so that's just kind of how i've organized our chat here just to prepare you so we're of course going to start with our titular character jane and <laughs> i just want to ask right off because this is the thing that bothered me when i first read it it still bothered me now how old is jane <laughs> that's a very good question <laughs> oh gosh that and in fact, that really puts the uh, put the finger on it. I was like, what? I Like, I have some sort of unspoken issue with her. And I guess it's like, God, what age is she? And I suppose she is college-aged. So maybe in college, but out of college. Because she, I mean, obviously she's been working on a boat. Um, so yeah, I probably, if I had to guess, I would say they were shooting for somebody who was 19. Okay. Yeah, I would say that she was at least 18. Yeah. I think it does come down to how long she was working on that boat, but we're not given a lot, which is my next question, of course. We're not given a lot of her background, but I feel like, just given having watched CODA, the Academy Award-winning film, that you could be in high school, probably, and work on a, a boat. So I feel like she probably started in high school earning all that money and then left as soon as she could, which would be when she could legally leave, I think, a, a household anyways. Mm. So, 
Okay, so we're at the legal age limit. But, <laughs> you know, just looking at the age, which I can't even remember if Rochester's specific age was given, but he's at least two decades older, is in this adaptation, or just in the story, for me it's the adaptation, for you the story, is the Rochester-Jane relationship palatable? Can you take it and go with it, or was that a stopping point for you as you were reading, or really a sticking point, I should I should say? It was one of them, and probably the most prominent, uh, and not just because of the age gap, because my issues were already sort of fortified by the time I'd even considered that there was something uh, untoward there. I mean, which again is a sort of a constantly shifting target of appropriateness or morality or if it's something you should even bother commenting on. But more sort of pressing, I suppose, to me was that they were just so, both of them were so unappealing that I didn't understand, I could not emotionally understand why they would be interested in either if that parses like what, you know, Rochester is this very rich, very mysterious man. And that is, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but two huge turnoffs for me. And then Jane is an un, in, a girl of indeterminate age who has almost no character. So I just, I didn't, the relationship <laughs> was, was somewhat difficult to, uh, to get. You don't think she has any character whatsoever? Not, no, uh, I guess not, but I, I guess we can, we can have that out. <laughs> We can have that. No, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to, to see your your perspective on Jane here. Is she a plain Jane, like very oh. specifically, very literally? Very literally. Perhaps that's the 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 deconstruction. This is we're deconstructing the term plain Jane, saying that even a normal girl can go to an island and I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she. It's it's very much a case of telling and not showing. And again, for me, comic book storytelling, I think, is just difficult in general, but probably especially difficult for a film screenwriter. If you take, you know, pages of, you know, final draft formatted screenplay and try to turn it into a comic book, you would find that every comic page translates to roughly one half of your script page. Whereas in movies and TV shows, every page is one minute of film. And so comic book scenes tend to be a lot shorter than scenes in a traditionally paced American film. And to me, they come off as quite clipped. And the, the explanation for that, of course, is that it's just so much labor for an artist to, uh, to render an entire scene. And you don't want to be looking at the same shots for, you know, multiple pages. I suppose it would be something like eight pages for a whole scene. Like you're never going to have that in a comic book. Uh, depending, of course, that's obviously, again, me generalizing as the, person who rates low on the scale um and so in this case i think that the storytelling is it just seemed like it was in fast forward mode and jane's whole character was very much told it was established at the moment where she said i'm an orphan and i don't know it just kind of went from there to the point where when you have the what i imagine to be the emotional climax of the story which is when the incident with the the woman come for rochester brings the woman in and Jane says, I get it. I'm poor and invisible. You can do what you want. Is that it? Like, that's that's her saying uh, point B, essentially, on her character arc. And it's just it's information that we already kind of understood. So there is no arrival. There is no change in her. Um, to me, I guess she is flat more than she is plain. Yeah, I, I wonder if McKenna, the writer, kind of translates the plain Jane where I, I feel like that's more of a 
physical description into having her and I don't even know if that was her intention it just so happens that we go from someone who is normally physically plain but is actually really deep and thoughtful and well-rounded to now someone who is I would say attractive which is another question I have and now doesn't have too much depth like she does seem very two-dimensional I don't disagree with you I was just asking what you thought about that I think part of the issue for me is maybe why she's not as interesting as she could be is that you know mainly besides the initial history there's not too much inner monologue and a big thing with the actual source material is that there's this intimacy established between Jane as narrator and the reader that she's actually speaking to us. And I feel like there is more dialogue and we're not really told too much about her inner thoughts or, you know, what sort of struggles that are going through. I mean, I'm just flipping through now and seeing how little of narration there is. And she also makes bizarre decisions, I think. And frustrating moments of clearly you should get out of this situation or maybe not be doing what you're doing and and her friends in particular I would say her friend Hector is pretty wise and is telling you know trying to and she's just not listening I don't know how she's pursuing her degree she doesn't seem to spend too much time in class so she's much the opposite of how I envision and how Jane is on in the in the source material. So I can see what you're what you're saying. So that is always a frustration for me. But then I have to think, well, this is an adaptation. She's 18 years old. So could we give it to you know its immaturity yet? And she hasn't really developed her her own character, or is this just it's a flaw that you can't really explain? You think it's a writing flaw? I think it might be, and I think the problem is that she is kind of flawless, uh, so to speak, and without texture, that she has all these, and I think it makes it such that when she makes a mistake, as you and I might see it, a a strange decision or a strange non-decision, that it is not criticized by the point of view or by the storytelling, it just kind of is, and she just, uh, there's no sort of internality or dialogue or discussion of what what she is or what she's doing she's you know a great artist she suffers no sort of character flaws from having a tragic backstory there's no sort of post-traumatic stress or any 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 problems that she seems to be dealing with they're all external and she can meet them with this surprising and sudden competence and everybody likes her automatically she can kind of neglect or be neutral towards her very very supportive friends and you know it kind of goes on like that yeah i i feel like she's almost a mirror or perhaps even that is is the wrong surface but i i feel like we see the most character when she's with somebody else yeah. But she also morphs. She's very much a chameleon. So she'll take on whatever guys, you know, if she's with Nicole in class, she's one way. If she's with Hector, she's another way. If she's with Edward, she, you know, and Adele. So I like some of those dimensions that we see and some of those colors that pop up, but it's it's very inconsistent. There's not kind of an authentic Jane that carries through, which is, I, I think, true of the source material, that Jane is this strong character, and she's like that no matter what she's going up against or whom she is with so yeah i get what you're saying so we we talked about this with our home life 
do you have a thought as to why McKenna shied away from delving into that? I mean, it was so superficial, really. She makes mention that when she's leaving, she is in Jane. She could have brought up how she was treated. And there appears to be one panel that maybe she has a cut on her lip. But it's really just difficult to know what actually went on there in the house. Do you think it matters? So I guess my two questions are, why do you think the writer didn't delve into that? Because that could have added dimension to her. And then my secondary question is, does it matter? Yeah, I if that opening scene was excluded from the story, I would not have wondered about it, I suppose, because it didn't, it didn't seem to have a bearing on the rest of the story. And so I wonder if it's a question of why didn't she, more as like, why did she? And I think it's probably, it, it comes down to a speculation I have about the, the book, which might be presumptive, but the idea that once you're adapting something in a radical way, the purpose kind of uh, not defines itself, but is uh, less reader facing than perhaps it should be that you kind of do things because well it's an interesting take more than because it's an interesting idea or will have some sort of emotional consequence for the for the receiver and so i don't again i'm not familiar with the story but if it's uh if she's sort of including it perhaps because it existed in the original story in some form then that might have been kind of the end of it as far as the creative decision went and she didn't feel like she had to do anything more but again, as I hear myself talk, it's a very it's a very presumptuous uh, assertion. I think you could do an adaptation. I'm just thinking about you know some of them that I've seen already that you could avoid this. But I think the fact that Jane is an orphan, like that, seems to be the standard. Like you need to show that she has no one really, mm-hmm. and being poorly treated is also just something that she carries with her and that's such a bonding trait or a commonality that she has with Adele so that's you know that one tie but you're right that it doesn't really show up again so Adele is kind of that main point that brings it back to oh yeah she had this troubling past her financial difficulties that kind of ties back and then of course the painting at the very end we get tied back into there so at least it's not a drift but You learn so much about who Jane is in the source material from her life when she's at Gateshead and then, of course, her schooling at Lowood. Like, these are two big moments in understanding who Jane is and and watching her develop. But here, I can't really really tell what's going on. (laughs) So, you know, is it – was it a rough life? Is that actually a cut on her lip? And so we can kind of get a sense of – where she's coming from but if that's true if she was abused i feel like she would want not much if anything to do with edward because he seems you know i saw synopsis like brooding and cantankerous and i thought (laughs) that guy seems really like either way he could swing either way he's kind of on the verge of something i would be concerned so i feel like she would not want anything to do with him or is it just like it was a bad it was a bad life it was almost as if i mean technically i guess she was like a foster child and it just wasn't the greatest home life and so she left you know so i guess i would like to have more i think it does matter i don't know why she didn't go into it but perhaps she just had limited page count she had to make it matter but there of course are other places that i think that suffers as well if there was a page limitation mhm it, it just it was just very expositional 
which is literally what it is. But there was just by the time, yeah, I think theoretically all that prologue exists so that when she makes the connection with Adele, you feel it. And I just didn't. It was it was very much a, a situation of again, tell, don't show. Yeah, I think if it had started off with her being in New York City and getting to know who this person was, and then maybe in interactions with other people, or when Edward is talking to her over the fire, because that's more like him. Well, he learns a bit about her, but he also talks about himself, learning more in that way, more of an organic feel of as the story goes, you know, as other characters are getting to know her, we're getting to know her. That could have worked better as well. Exactly. Like, let's see her first try and fail to connect to people so that when she does make the connection, we, we understand that we feel it and we're like, okay, finally, it's a, it's a release. You know, it's, it's as cathartic as she might feel it to be. And we understand why she's connecting to specifically Adele. Uh, whereas in the story as it exists, she kind of just is accepted by everybody uniformly except for Magda, which is, as we might discuss, completely unexplained. It goes nowhere. Oh that yeah <laughs> we certainly can talk about her absolutely anything else just on jane as i move into uh edward i yeah i i don't know i think it's it's one of those situations where perhaps it it should have been either or either have more uh internal narration as a glimpse into her mind space or have none at all and try to write in a different manner, and I think that this is where uh, an, another key difference between screenwriting, uh, which, as we understand, is McKenna's specialty, and comic book writing and prose writing. Uh, in this case, I think it's a bit awkward as a mix that we have the kind of uh, both her often speaking aloud her own internal thoughts and a representation of her internal thoughts, and it's just it doesn't really add up to a complete picture. No, I would say that it does not. So. Edward Rochester. <laughs> there is an image that, I don't know, I probably thought this the first time I read it. I think it's on page 52 where it's just him standing. It's uh, yellow and black. And the writing above says, there he was, dark, handsome, and not blurry. I guess this is the first time she sees him fully as he, as he exits his office. But he looks like Bruce Wayne. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm looking at this, and then I'm also looking at all of the different characters, and I wonder if, now I'm asking you who, who's not as, your snuff is not up to much on Jane Eyre, but I think you know that not many of the characters in Jane Eyre are attractive. But in this story, I feel like the majority, if not all, of the characters are really attractive. Do you feel like this story loses something the fact that the the cast is, you know, to a certain extent, uh, beautiful. I, I guess it helps with the sort of shorthand storytelling that they're going for, that the reason why anybody would be attracted to anybody else is just because those superficial details do exist. So I suppose it can kind of be a backhanded excuse for some of the shortcomings, but I don't know if that's really a legitimate uh, approach. Uh, of course, it is not. So that's that's interesting. And I think it's unfortunate. I think it's obviously it's a less interesting story, um, just broadly speaking, um, something that we've seen a lot before. For whatever reason, it does make Rochester, I don't know, it, it gives him, I guess, even more power than he already has over this much younger employee that makes the relationship even more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I think this 
relationship seems pretty troubling. I, I think McKenna may balance his outward beauty with like his internal ugliness because like I just feel like he's worse than the OG Edward Rochester. <laughs> he you know he's he drinks which I mean Edward the OG Edward drinks as well but it just seems like you know he is a step away from being violent so I'm always I'm yeah. just really concerned. But it I don't know it does seem like somewhat predatory especially you know just some of those scenes where he's watching her. <laughs> Or he'll he'll turn on a dime. I it's that's just one thing I can't get over with that. And and you think about it in terms of the original, and that was basically. I mean, that is the age difference. But I think it's just something culturally now. Whereas you know, looking back then, it's like, well, that was it may have been a little unusual, but it wasn't so unusual that children weren't getting married you know 16 year olds and things like that but here it's like oh is there grooming going on what's happening here yeah i'm i'm totally with you there but i i am a bit disappointed that the whole cast is attractive i guess it's just the the medium i mean that's something that i'll talk about in the second half with the manga how they all look precious and cute as (laughs) all manga and anime characters do mostly with the exception of bertha but yeah, I guess it's he wouldn't. Do you think he loves her for, or was his initial attraction to her because she was pretty, or do you think it's because of how she treated Adele? I, I think that's what McKenna's is going for. Um, but it's just so hard because their interactions are so limited. Um, but yeah, in the story as written, the idea is that. Because she has taken on this sort of guardian role in a stronger way, we suppose, than the previous nannies, and she is kind of standing up to him in a way that perhaps nobody else had, that uh, this is what makes her different. And I think that's probably the strongest element of that whole aspect of the story. Mm, Yeah. We also have a potential love triangle. Yes, perhaps. Uh, perhaps, yeah. I mean, Edward thinks so and gets a bit jealous. But that would have been an interesting story point. But, of course, we can't because Richard is the is the villain. Yes, nothing was as it seemed. Indeed. I will say one thing that made me uncomfortable is that Jane calls him Rochester, just in general. <laughs> I feel like Mr. Rochester seems more appropriate or Edward because you did just have sex on a boat, so it seems like maybe you've progressed to that. I will bring that up um, when we get to their actual relationship. And he also apologizes to her at the because at the very beginning, she gets splashed with his car is how he describes it. But when I whenever I see it, it looks like he is legitimately going to hit her. Yes. So that that always strikes me as odd. Like she nearly died and he said, hey, sorry for splashing you with my car. (laughs) And she has no reaction to that. I know. Oh, boy. Okay, so let's break down his character and what we know about him. So we know that he loved and I would even argue loves his wife. Would you agree with that? I would agree. Okay. Now, Edward normally has some sort of trauma. And it's based off of a situation that he was put into by his father and his elder brother because of the line of inheritance and, then of course, Bertha and everything. 
But here, would you say that the trauma ultimately comes from Isabel's accident? Uh, the fact that she was she took a bullet for him accidentally. Yeah, although I I don't suspect that he was a much different person before then. Okay, I was going to ask, like, do you think this really irrevocably changed? Well, I guess not irrevocably if we see some glimmers, but did this really change him? I mean, he was already a rich guy. Uh, so I just feel like his characterization when we first meet him is already pretty consistent with how we understand rich men in fiction to be certainly cleaving to a, to an archetype that is perhaps a far cry from the rich men of real life who just turn out to be like strange little weirdos. Uh, this guy is very much in the, in the mold of a Bruce Wayne. And so I, well, who also has a, I suppose a trauma (laughs) That informs a lot of his character, but, mm-hmm. you know, to the outside Gotham Observer, it's like, well, he's so brooding because he's rich and he stands with gargoyles and things. And that's something I can understand. I guess I, I would have loved to see what he was like with Isabel. Yeah. Mason portrays it as maybe, I mean, they were having vacations and having fun. So it seems like maybe he was lighter hearted, <laughs> but... Yeah, this is, I guess, just caring for someone, keeping this secret, and also conducting a side investigation for years yeah. has really put the, the dampener on on his character. But it is something, I feel like the trauma doesn't correlate as well, and I feel bad saying that because, of course, we shouldn't judge people um, due to their trauma and how everything's going, but it just seems like... Why does he act the way he acts, and does it connect to this, and does that does it all make sense? Yeah, I, I, I feel those same sort of hesitant reservations, and it is an important disclaimer, because traumas like phobias are not easy to explain, right. I guess, if you have them to, uh, mm-hmm. to people who don't. I, I will say, just as a callback, again, there's no continuity of the show, but if you watch I Walked with a Zombie, this is similar to that because Paul Rand still loves his comatose wife even as he is falling for Betsy, mm-hmm. so I, who is the Jane Eyre stand-in. So I feel like, even though people may be like, that doesn't make sense, I think it does uh, make sense, and I think that we, we have seen in reality how you know people can love multiple people at once. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's just kind of disappointed how that was never remarked upon in the story, which maybe it doesn't need to be because it's uh, a cliche, I guess. But there was no moment where Rochester is kind of uh, facing that problem of, well, how much do I, you know, am I betraying my wife or how much of my heart can I truly give to somebody else? Which is a, a conflict we've seen many times, but there wasn't even enough space in the story to contain that plot point. Yeah, and you have to be careful because is he just interested in Jane because she's this vital living thing? Yeah. Whereas his wife is, you know, not, and mm-hmm. he's not been with her. Yeah, so is this almost misplaced love? Which could have been a very interesting avenue for the story to go. It would have been, yeah. Which is, I think that whole, I don't know if I talk about this at all, with Eliza, this may be the time to do it now. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually do. I say, yeah, what's the deal with Eliza? Who is the, the Blanche Ingram stand-in? And, and really, what is the point in terms of the story where he comes back? I think he was in Asia. After months, and and he brings Eliza back home with him. And at first he says, I, I wonder if I can find this page. That it's, like, complicated. And then he says, it's not what you think. Like, very mixed messages. Yeah. 
you can almost say it's like, oh, guys, they just don't get it. But it's like this is a really, a really strong case of a guy just not getting it or not understanding how he's coming across or communicating an idea to somebody. Yeah. Now, in in the source material, Blanche is sort of used to test Jane to see if she would feel jealousy for Edward <laughs> or jealousy. How would that? What preposition would I use? Jealousy over? Uh, perhaps yes jealousy towards <laughs> Blanche whether she would feel jealousy in their in their relationship but I don't think that he's doing that here do you no that's interesting because uh, at this point in the story even consistent with its own logic I, it doesn't seem well it's still a, a kind of unknown quantity how much Rochester cares for Jane and so Obviously, in that case, it might be a misguided attempt at getting something like in a sitcom way to get somebody to look at you. But in this case, it's like, well, does he even care that much to play some sort of mind game? Mm -hmm. And they do have the in, in lieu of the party that they have in the in the OG Jane Eyre. They do have this situation where Eliza and I was about to call him Bruce Wayne and <laughs> Edward are sitting on the couch and Eliza bought a gift for Adele. And, you know, Jane is sitting there watching all of this unfold, feeling very out of place. But obviously, though, there are some pent up emotions because there's like a very violent kiss scene yeah. uh, after they have that fight there. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, she even says I was jealous, as jealous as he was at the ballet. It drew me to him. So, but was that his point? Why with Eliza? I, it just seems like, I don't know what the purpose was for that character. So. No, and I also wonder, it's a bit difficult to, to to tell from the art, but I don't know if she was supposed to be an Asian woman, and if oh. that was supposed to sort of trigger any kind of additional uh, anxiety, but... Yeah, with the the ballet and all of that, it's it's kind of the trap that I think a lot of writers might stumble into, which is the achievement of mystery over any kind of dramatic implication. Because when we don't know, or the less we know about characters, the more intriguing they might become, but the less substantive they are. And so, yeah, Rochester is just very mysterious and we don't know what he's thinking, and because we don't know what he's thinking, we don't know what any of it really means or what we should be feeling, unfortunately. Yeah. And and I think you could have used some of that space to clear up some other questions because it immediately goes yes. into the home evasion. And yeah. then, you know, the ending point as well. So it's, yeah, it's rather jarring when we're we're, we're in there. Very jarring, and but I gotta say the escalation at the ver at the third act kind of uh, it was a bit of a page turner. I was like, wow, this is really getting kind of wild, and I kind of want to. See it did get wild, yeah. It certainly was not what I was uh, thinking was going to happen. No. Do you? This goes back to his trauma and just his character. But why do you think he has the outbursts that he has and his flip flopping emotions? Do you think alcohol is to blame, or is that just his character? Ooh. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really put too much stock on the alcohol component, but I suppose I never really do. Uh, I know that that's kind of like the rationale that they came up with for, uh, and ex for example, the movie Unforgiven, where why the old West was the way it was is because of alcohol, which I just think is kind of reductive. And in this case, I think it, the more interesting interpretation is just that he has not been in a serious relationship for a very long time. And, uh, 
uh, well, I don't know. I guess that's maybe the more generous interpretation that it, it goes to character rather than something external. Although alcoholism certainly is not an external thing. I mean, that is a part of a, of a person's character, I suppose. Yeah. I, I think the only reason why I even bring up the alcohol, because that, it is interesting. Maybe it's just me because I'm like practically a teetotaler. So whenever I see something in media and then there's like some sort of negative behavior or behavior that I'm trying to explain, I wonder, oh, is that you know, is that person alcoholic? Which yeah. happened when I was watching Company on Broadway because every scene Bobby is drinking. And, of course, the scenes are disparate, like, vignettes. But I even asked Carolyn, like, do you think she might be an alcoholic? Because, I don't know, like, there's something going on there. But the reason why I pointed out to this one is because at that party where he kind of got physically violent with her, he actually he got physical with her and, like, grabbed her arm and that whole Mason thing and accosting her about that and then he blames the alcohol so I just wasn't sure if that that might be it but I I think he his maturity level <laughs> might be on the same level as Jane's you know and he just doesn't and and perhaps that's a cliche like a a male cliche and and I don't mean to I guess label all men as having trouble with emotions, but I think, you know, given what we know of him anyways and being this particular lifestyle, maybe he just doesn't, he never had room to figure out his emotions and deal with them properly. And so he's just, yeah, kind of up and down and, and doesn't really talk through anything because, yeah, he doesn't really talk about what he's thinking or feeling or anything with Jane. So maybe that's just what it is. You think that's toxic yeah. masculinity? Uh, hmm. Going right for the big red button, I suppose. Um, I did, yep. <laughs> I mean, like and subscribe. <laughs> that is definitely the point of the story where, in like the romantic comedy, you know, structure, that's where they're at their most miscommunicative, and it's that's you know, pulling on the heartstrings or whatever. I think it's un an unfortunate creative decision, especially coming from McKenna, because uh, part of the appeal with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And by extension, as a contemporary CW show, Jane the Virgin, as well as, again, by extension, all of those female-driven shows from the era like Fleabag, uh, it was interesting to see, for the first time for me, to see really women writing men. And uh, my takeaway from that was that when women write men, they're very appealing, uh, and not just in a romantic or a sexual way, they're just charming they are more open with their emotions they're they're approachable you can talk to them they're not always closed off and talk about oh i don't need a therapist or, 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 or like in every cbs television show you're ever gonna watch and it's and in this one it is much more about that kind of traditional masculinity which again especially after that wave of tv shows it's just it's less interesting the i guess the real problem is that there is no, uh, again, that kind of internal criticism where Rochester might be doing bad things, but you never get the impression that he's truly in the wrong, that whatever he's doing, he's probably correct. And it's an interesting, probably accidental thing to communicate. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the storytelling of the, not CBS, I think this is an NBC show, uh, This Is Us, where, you know, in every scene there's, you know, some guy who you have some forced preconception about like a neighbor who's being annoying and then the character will confront him 
and he'll say, yes, I'm being annoying, but my father died in World War II. And like, that's just the, that's what the whole show is about is just people giving monologues about how they're actually not bad or they deserve to be difficult or something. Uh, and that, that was the, I guess not the impression I was having at the moment, but kind of where the, uh, the unfavorable comparison I'm drawing now, just in terms of how these characters are, are illustrated, so to speak. So you're saying it comes down to empathy. It could. That's your personal red button <laughs> to launch the happy missile. Well, empathy for myself that I, I can't empathize with these characters. No empathy for the characters because in the anecdote you just shared, that's the idea that, you know, someone could be a jerk, but there might be a reason behind yeah. his jerkiness or annoyance. And then you come to find out, yeah, that he's got, you know, this hard thing that he's dealing with. Yeah. So, yeah, does it... We just have to kind of, uh, he might be making weird decisions or acting strangely, but there's a reason behind it. So we just have to be empathetic towards him. So I guess that begs the question of, do you have empathy for the character? I guess not. And I wonder, I wonder why that is not just with this story, but perhaps uh, generally, why is it, what are the, the criteria, so to speak, that I can become empathetic towards a fictional character or perhaps a non-fictional character? Why do I care about people in real life? And honestly, I think oftentimes it does come down to something very cynical, which is that all human interaction is sort of an exchange. And so if you want me to care about you, you have to give me something up front. And it can't just be a sad backstory because that does not trigger in me personally interest, which is sort of the gateway to empathy, but almost like a sort of like a guilt, like, you know, the ads on Facebook about like uh, kids in foreign country who are fleeing a war zone or something like that. Like that's not, it's not effective in a way that obviously it should be like, you should feel empathetic towards those people, but there's a, there's a flaw in the messaging, I guess. But how do you, (laughs) how are those people, how are those children (laughs) or how is Edward on the page going to reach out and give you something? Right. Yeah, those children. What can they do for me? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I'd be, but honestly, like, yes, that sounds, uh, that sounds very monstrous. I don't, I don't need to, uh, defend myself because I think we've all, unfortunately, had to scroll by a lot of those ads or just be sort of suspicious of them. Um, but in this case, in the case of a Jane, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it kind of, it circles back to that mystery box storytelling that there's just nothing there. Um, the mystery of him, the mystery of the door that you're not supposed to open. Like there was, I just didn't care about any of it. There were, there was no intrigue there. Um, and that's kind of a, a more difficult answer as to why something just didn't work on the page. I see. Okay. You know, his wife really humanizes him for me. The fact that he has kept her alive and is hopeful, you know, that she will awaken, I think is is a really like a, a positive thing in his corner that there is something loving about him. Because if you're seeing all these other interactions, you're like, this guy, he's not the best father. He even admits it. He had to be cajoled in order to go to a... <laughs> <laughs> a parent-teacher conference, and he threatened to fire people if if their children didn't stop bullying Adele. You know, that's not necessarily – that's like really flaunting your wealth. <laughs> but the fact that you, when you find that out, but it's so late in the game that I, I don't know how much can be saved or salvaged from what your first opinion was of him. 
And for me, you know, I keep, of, of course, comparing to the OG Edward, you get bits and pieces of who this guy is who's really tortured. And so I feel like there's there's a lot that I put on the line feeling-wise for that character, hoping for the best outcome. And a lot of it is also because of Jane Eyre herself, because, again, that intimacy established where she sees something that we may not, but we believe and we love it. Well, hopefully we believe and we love in Jane. <laughs> so we're like, well, she sees something in the sky. So maybe I should give him the benefit of the doubt. But because we have a weak Jane here and we don't see as much as what he's seen. And even she sees bad things. Then you're like, well, I'm what, why, why does she like him? She's even remarking that he's not good. I don't believe in this guy. So <laughs> yeah. I see what you're saying there. Do you feel like he was, this is, here it was, I've connected it all back again. You had made mention that it seems like he might be doing the right things, even though they either don't look good from, from, you know, an external view, or they may turn out poorly. So one of those things, of course, is that he lies. He he does not tell his daughter and he does not tell his brother-in-law that Isabel is still alive. Do you feel like he was in the right to do that? Uh, to, the, to the book's credit, it is very much from Jane's perspective. And from her perspective, he perhaps comes off as more frustrating than he is objectively with the, the benefit of hindsight. And as you even mentioned, the book is better when you know all that information, which I suppose may uh, arise the quit. That's not really a verb and that it may lead to the question of why did we just have all the information up front, which is the, the question now. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, from his perspective, I think it's kind of a combination of he, th- he thinks he's doing the right thing. And this is just kind of how he understands the right thing to be, which is miscommunication. And that is something that has the, uh, you know, potential to cause problems as it does. I don't know if he had have sat down and explained the situation to her. Uh, I think that would have alleviated some of the problems. But if he had done that, then he would have done that for every nanny that he had fired and let loose into the world with this very important secret now. So it's uh, it's difficult. I don't know. I think there is probably a middle ground that uh, of communication that simply could not be achieved uh, within the the limits of the story that they're trying to tell here. It's also just very shocking that it's been five years now and he hasn't found out what has happened. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Which there's another on the other side. It's been five years. Well, when we get into Mason, I'll ask another question. But five years has passed. That's kind of crazy. Okay. Anything else on Edward? I I don't know. I'm a firm believer that. In order for the romances that have touched my heart, let's say, have always uh, require that you like the two characters individually before they fall in love, essentially. And I think that's something that I need to have happen. And I don't know if that's just my sort of personal experience uh, with romance itself, but that it's like, uh, to me, what's more compelling is like friendships. And so if you have two friends who kind of fall in love, then... That's something that I can understand, and by that point, then we probably do like the characters or understand their relationship before it it sort of solidifies in that sense. And in this case, the relationship is so, so much based on, like, mistrust and a lack of information and questions that, yeah, just by function of what it is, it just was not going to uh, to reach me. Which is 
of course the the next spot that I want to talk about is is the romance overall mm. so we can that you segued very well into that uh-huh. do you think that this would this is even a question I had but as you were talking about it could this have worked if there were no romantic interests between either of them I mean I don't want to be glib but the story was kind of so flat that yeah you could have taken away that and not really subtracted much of anything uh, I suppose that when you do have the romance, then you can kind of think, well, that's the point of the story and everything else is just kind of a, a complication uh, to get there. But I don't know if that's even the case if, or if this is more of a coming of age story for a girl who does have a lot of uh, growing to do because she's very young. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that could be interesting. You know, this uh, comic is sort of dotted with a lot of conspicuous diversity, the kind of like CW diversity that you might yeah. see and kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, which, you know, it's uh, it's so difficult because how do you make it sort of subtle, I suppose. But to that, it's uh, you would think that maybe you could do something more interesting, like a uh, an aromantic story, which I don't know if that's even the, the correct terminology, but a story of two people who do care about each other, but there is no no romance. I think that that could have been a, a more interesting storytelling challenge. Yeah, and you mentioned coming of age, the the building's Roman. Mm-hmm. I th- I think this barely falls into that category. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because you know the prologue, which is barely there, and we just have maybe a year in the life. I don't know of Jane, and and you don't see too much character development. I mean, I feel like the Jane at the end is basically the same as the the beginning of her time in new york city but yeah i wonder if we could have gotten away with her just maybe having a crush on him and then this mystery and the crush kind of fizzles out and um but there was no relationship between the two and she they kind of parted ways after everything was resolved that would have been interesting if hector hadn't been gay you could have potentially had maybe a which i'm fine with that that he was her gay best friend i guess and roommate uh but that could have been an interesting dynamic or if you had made jane queer and maybe nicole wasn't you know an interest but those two characters while there could have been potential i think because you you show different dimensions of her life through them they don't really appear very often (laughs) so you lose track of them and you're like well what was the point i mean hector is definitely i would say Maybe I don't even want to say definitely, but I feel like he's the Helen Burns stand-in. But, you know, the one of the main points of Helen is that she really is instrumental in Jane kind of leaving this, this hateful, woe is me, I demand justice behind and taking on more of a, you know, let's, let's try to love our enemies as well as our neighbors and uh, without her, you know, we, we wouldn't have the Jane that we have now. But Hector, I don't know what sort of lessons he bestows on her because whatever he tells her, which is correct, he's like very much is the voice of reason. She ignores him anyway. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I love that he's a drag queen. I love that he's a person of color along with Nicole. So you're right about that diversity, but I feel like it's almost like superficial diversity. Yeah. That they don't they don't use it as much. I yeah, one of those questions I said, does McKenna do enough with these characters to consider them a diverse cast or is it just window dressing? Yeah, I I would sorry. <laughs> I I would definitely say that 
that is the term, the exact term, because it's almost like uh, you have the important characters and then the not important characters, and they can sort of be taken up by characters who are very visually or superficially diverse because they are people of color, they are maybe sexually uh, ambiguous, um, but they have absolutely no vector of uh, significance in Jane's life. Like, there is no question that she might be interested in either as more than their sort of prescribed role in her life, which are like borderline subordinate roles. The fact that Hector kind of rolls out this huge red carpet for her for really no reason uh, and just kind of assumes that like stock sassy gay best friend character minus the sassiness because that would be way too old school. And then Nicole was the other character like, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess she was just kind of there to, bounce ideas off of on art but other than that yeah give her encouragement that oh this teacher's rough on everyone right that was like the climax of her character was to say that it seems like it yeah back to the edward jane relationship would you consider it toxic or is it just troubling Ooh, yeah i don't think it really has the longevity to be toxic i think it's probably unfortunate that it is at its most compelling as a uh, part of a family unit, uh, because it's, I think the relationship that she has with Adele is kind of sweet, um, what she does for her. But unfortunately, it's like automatically you're sweeping this perhaps 19 year old girl into the nuclear family. And like, you know, she lives in New York and, uh, I, I just feel like different or more interesting. Um, but you know, if she, well, it's also like there's something that he says at the end about her art. Where he's like, so tell me about your paintings. It was very much like uh, Roy on The Office. This maybe the best line in the series where he goes to Pam and says, your art was the prettiest art of all the art. Like, how interested is he really going to be in that part of her life? Uh, I guess that's the problem with answering a question like this, is that there's just a lot of unknown quantities and unknown variables that it makes it very difficult to say uh, whether or not it's toxic because it's not even uh, seemingly fully realized. It's too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. I was troubled because I feel like Edward is probably Jane's first sexual experience. Oh, interesting. And now I'm just saying that because she's seemed uninterested in everybody, according to the prologue <laughs> that we had. And yeah, I don't know. It just seemed, you know, everyone's got to lose, lose their virginity sometime. <laughs> But, oh, man, I don't know. It just it bothered me the first time I read it. It bothered me this time. And then immediately after, he, like, leaves. And so it seems even worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. But is it just me? Was I the only one that was uh, troubled by their, their boat time escapades? That's a really bad place to uh, have sex with somebody on a boat. I think, uh, again, to cite another recent American sitcom, that's kind of the basis of the Dennis character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, that, you know, if you're surrounded by water and you're getting intimate with a lady, then it might might be considered somewhat coercive, but it's, it's not really portrayed that way. But, you yeah, know, it didn't even occur to me that, yeah, but this is probably her first sexual uh, experience with a much older man. With of, a much older man, yeah. Yes. Ooh, That's kind know. of the sticking point, right? It's not an 18-year-old and an 18-year-old. Right. An 18-year-old and at least a 36-year-old. Mm. So, yeah. Is this just a rich father slash nanny trope? Ah, is 
is that a trope? I mean, I I believe that it is, but um, <laughs> usually you... I think there's adultery involved, which technically there is oh, here. Oh yeah, no, I see what you but, mean. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Is that yeah? I suppose that is inherently problematic, um, but kind of unremarked upon thematically because there is no discussion of um, you know professional boundaries or. Consent, really. I don't think. I don't think that word is brought up. This is not Ghost in the Shell 2017. Ooh. Another great cultural reference. Yeah, I didn't know there was a nanny in Ghost in the Shell. Oh, no. It's just they, they <laughs> in that movie, they throw the word consent around in a really awkward way. Oh, I see. Okay. I, I think technically it is, but it doesn't feel like the conventional trope. I think potentially because, or possibly because, the wife is not kind of wandering around. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and even though the word nanny is used, I think Jane's relationship with Adele seems deeper than that. So yeah. I think McKenna is able to kind of get away with it. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Well, I mean, it does seem that she has more agency than... Yeah. But maybe that's the trap that we kind of fall into and why we propagate these tropes. Yeah, perhaps. And then final question on their relationship. What do you think their future is at the end? Do you think that they get back together? Do you think that they're living together as we speak? Uh, I mean, the story does have kind of a weird fairy tale vibe, despite the kind of the, the sudden darkness of the subject matter at the end there. So I, I figure, yeah, it's a happy ending and they live happily ever after. That's That was the impression that I got. Happily ever after. Yeah, he's got a cane, maybe. Maybe just for a little bit. Well, who knows? Who knows? I hope that if they do get back together, that, to be honest, actually, I hope that there's space between, like, the ending and them actually getting back together, and that maybe they wait until she graduates or something like that, so she can kind of understand who she is on her own and grow into herself. Maybe date other people. She might not be interested, but at least, you know, to understand and then, you know, get back together with him instead of leaping back into this. Because I think a lot of healing needs to be done, Mm -hmm. mainly, I would say, on his side, but to to get over that traumatic experience and then then come back together. But happy endings are nice as a shipper, you know, but I I am slightly concerned for this relationship. Happy endings are nice, but you got to earn them. It's true. It is very true. Okay, so before the ending, I did want to talk about Richard Mason. Mm-hmm. So we're, d- did you like him? What do you think about him? Did you like him? Were you shocked that he turned out to be a villain? Did you like him as a villain? All of that stuff. I'd say he's probably my favorite character. And I think really? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, if he was in any other story, I don't think I'd be like, oh, this is the guy. But in this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In this one, he's the only character who really serves a a function that uh, operates in an emotional capacity because when Jane is thrown into this world where she feels anxious and out of place, he's the only one to dissipate that anxiety by just kind of reaching out and being a friend. And so because of that, he is instantly likable, um, just as Jane likes him. And I thought it was kind of curious how much he disappears in the story because immediately that's a setup for a love triangle. And I think there might have even been some of that. Yeah. Cause when Rochester is, uh, he makes a scene at the, whatever function that was, I think we had already talked about that before. Um, it was because they were getting friendly. So when he makes his, uh, heel turn, I suppose it would be, 
I don't know if I was, I don't know, I'm trying to remember how I felt about that. I guess, I mean, I guess it makes sense in the sort of like law and order or like police procedural way that like one of the witnesses who you're going to interview is going to turn out to be the bad guy in the end because it's not just going to be some rando. So, of course, it was going to be him or Magda, and uh, it was him. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, that's fine. Oh, man. That would – well, if we were to go off on the Magda situation real quick, <laughs> that is – so she's clearly the Mrs. Fairfax stand-in. Mm-hmm. I say clearly to my audience, not to you. But – um, but she plays zero part. Like we don't really, I mean, she warns about the door. She, I don't know. She's basically a load of nothing. Yes. And, but if we had gone that route, I think it would have been too close to Rebecca. Mm. Do you know of Rebecca? I know of Rebecca by name. <laughs> I don't know the story that well. Okay. Well, just the fact that the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, turns out to be this person who is gaslighting oh. the nameless um well mrs de winter the new the second and yeah so i think it would have been too close had we had we done that but that would have been an interesting little turn do do you are we missing anything with magda not really <laughs> playing too much of a part and just as like this quirky character who pops up from time to time I feel like she was probably re- made redundant by the bodyguard character. Oh, true, Bob. Yeah, like Bob. I don't think that's his name. He could have been the guy standing around being like, "You can't go in there," or "This is the mansion," or whatever. Yeah. Um, because there was a an arc with him, and it was very brief, but it was. I mean, it was fine. It worked in that sort of like the pilots at the end of Prometheus kind of way, where they have two conversation or two scenes in the whole movie, one the setup and one the payoff. Uh, and that was fine, but he does render Magda completely, uh, completely redundant. Yeah, absolutely. So now I've got to come back to Mason as the as the villain. Yeah, he, I, I liked him. I liked how they dealt with it this way because he's very much a mewling sort of character in the source material, and of course he stops the wedding and everything with between Jane and Edward. And in other adaptations, he there's always, yeah, this closeness with his sister. And so I think McKenna really ran with that <laughs> and, and took it took it a degree higher. But I was shocked, I think, the first time I read it. And I remember knowing about it, of course, the second time. But still, the payoff is, is really great to see that, oh, he's actually the guy <laughs> that's been behind all of this. So it's just like this, you don't really see it coming, given how kind he is to Jane. But then I guess you wonder, you know, was he ever altruistically kind to Jane or was there always an agenda behind it? Do you think that from the very beginning, maybe he thought that he could use Jane to find out more about his beloved sister? You know, I never even thought about his designs on Jane because of the way he so literally brushed her aside at the end. Where I feel like, you know, he's in the doorway and she's possibly trying to intervene and he's just like, whatever, girl, and my business is with him. And she's just, she was so irrelevant to him at that point. And he had been so absent from the story that I kind of lost the, the thread on whatever he might have been feeling. Yeah. But that's interesting. I mean, that perhaps that's what it should have been, but unfortunately it was not. Yeah. I mean, maybe. We don't even know. Um, incest. What do you think? 
Uh, love it. Every time I see it, it always brings... <laughs> Two thumbs up for Harry! <laughs> no, that's pretty... I think it's a little bit too extreme for the story that's being mm-hmm. told. And it, I mean, it is literally the most extreme thing. It is why, for example, um, a certain Korean revenge thriller has the, the sort of shocking power that it does, because there are taboos that are so universal and so deeply unsettling that... Uh, they perhaps might have a disruptive quality on uh, on certain stories, and I don't think that this one really, again, like a happy ending, earned this uh, this turn. Um, of course, at this point, I didn't really care, so I wasn't really reading it with that sort of, you know, nuanced uh, approach. So it's like, all right, well, he's really he's getting little, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator, and Ooh. that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it did seem a bit extreme. I think we could maybe logically get there you know from the source material but like i said i think it's just like an extreme degree yeah and he he really changes like it's a complete like two-face almost where you know this really nice debonair guy suave and now it's like he's crazy he wants (laughs) to be with his sister I don't know if what kind of history those two have, you know, because the other person's comatose. So would she be like Commodus's sister and like, this is, yeah, I don't like you. This is too much. Right. Was there any sort of trauma in there? Like girl on the dragon tattoo? I don't know. We can only just play a guessing game. But I, well, I feel like depending on how strong her, Isabel's relationship with Edward was, I think he would have known if there were any trauma mm-hmm. unless she was hiding it. But yes, that's, that's pretty, pretty strong. And, you know, just like we see on media and in real life where abusers say, you know, if I can't have her, no one can. Right. He was, yeah, ready to, to kill Edward a second time. Yeah. I, I think the timing of everything here, like you said that this this climax was super page turning, which I agree with the exception of just like, why are they all of a sudden on this island? Where did Jane <laughs> get this vehicle, this motor vehicle to go and travel to the island? Why is Jane deciding to stay with this violent man and this other like just go out with the doubt? Like, you know, I have questions about that. But why would Mason wait to stage a home invasion to find his sister when Rochester is home and not traveling? He had months. <laughs> Rochester yes. was in Taipei for months. And then, you know, Jane says, she tells us that the attack happened in 2012. And so if we're in real time and this graphic novel came out in 2017, Mason had five years to do this, to find, to do the home invasion, find out about his sister, and kill Edward. So, just why now? <laughs> yes. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, it is kind of a funny and bad version of uh, Crazy Ass Girlfriend, which is about a woman who comes to town and kind of changes it uh, in a way, and it's almost like they were waiting for some sort of instigating event. And in this case, it's almost like, yes, Ed or Mason was just waiting for Jane to come along to interfere with his plans as they were uh, sprung into action. And yeah, I that coincidence, the terrible coincidence didn't even occur to me as I was reading it. But yeah, the mere mention of it uh, has me in uh, as in conniptions. Outrage. <laughs> this cannot stand. Oh, my. Yes. I don't know that that's kind of like the 
the weakness of the plot. And that's just one detail, but I think it, it's oh, just a good example of this story, how there are moments where there are questions that were not answered or it sort of defies belief on what's happening. Yeah. So that, that, that would certainly be one of my, my negative comments because did he really not know his sister was alive for five years? Edward was able to hide it for that long. He's a partner for goodness sake. <laughs> yes. I think... I'm, and he was in the house at all times and he wasn't allowed to touch the door. And it took him five years to figure out how they could do that. I mean, that just seems like wild, wild yeah. and, and unbelievable. It's for some reason, the only, uh, comparison i can make and this will be the penultimate random movie reference is uh what was that movie it wasn't enter the ninja it was revenge of the ninja where it turns out that his business partner was in fact the evil white ninja all along and i mean it's kind of like a like an 80s cop drama where uh yeah your partner was bought by the mob or the cartel and even though you thought you knew him but uh even though you were around him 100% of the time <laughs> and he had ample opportunity to to do x y and z yeah yeah yeah, and even in his evil monologue at the end, he doesn't feel culpable for any of it. Right. He's the one who shot his sister. Yes. And so I feel like there should have been some sort of, even in his madness, some sort of grief mixed in there as well. So that was just, that was crazy. And then he's, yeah, insane because he grabs Edward basically out of the window and pushes off. Yeah. Man, yeah. So so while I agree with you that it was a page turn, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It was also ridiculous. Yeah. It was a page <laughs> turn because you're like, how could this get any weirder? <laughs> yeah. And then, oh man, Jane. Yeah, so here we are just with this ending there. Do you have any thoughts? This is the third time I'm mentioning it because it's just so bizarre to me. <laughs> but the fact that Jane is told to leave with Adele and the bodyguards and I guess the uh, Richard's minions, but she ends up staying with them and Richard and kind of a Palpatine sort of way is like, good, Jane, yes, you should be here. Do you have any, why, why? <laughs> Just, <laughs> why? Why? Yeah, that, that was a, a, yes, as you were alluding to, a very strange sequence. It It's almost like uh, her purpose in the story was kind of, uh, it kind of blipped out and there was just no need for her. Because it was very much about these other two characters, or three characters, really, with uh, with Isabel. And she was kind of this periphery character, uh, and her purpose was only determined in the end where she's carrying out the wife. And that is somehow significant, it reminds me, and this is the, uh, again, penultimate random <laughs> purpose I'll make. Whatever. To, uh, the Hobbit, yes. An Unexpected Journey, where, uh, oh. well, this is something that Lindsay Ellis Which points part? out. Uh, the very end, where... You know, the whole movie, Thor and Oakenshield, is like, ah, I don't like this Hobbit guy. He can't do nothing for nobody. And so he, uh, Martin Freeman, proves himself to Thorin over and over again. But what really makes Thorin fall in love with him is when he tackles the orc off of him like a football player. Uh, so that was kind of like this. It was like, why is why is her carrying Isabel out like Robbie the Robot? The thing that's like, oh, that this is what she was always there to do. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't – and I can ask you a question later on in, in terms of Isabel. But, yeah, I'm looking at this, and she says there was no way I was leaving Rochester alone. But how – imagine 
what it would have been like had she remained outside and then she sees these two men falling <laughs> yeah. out of a window and just like horror struck and, and find it. And you just don't know what went on, right? you know, un- until I guess maybe Rochester comes to and explains all that. I mean, that would have been interesting, but of course, Isabel would have died right. um, in the, in the blaze, I guess. I, I don't know about this whole Isabel thing because I am now questioning often. It's potentially because of Professor Allen writing in and, and asking if Bertha is an example of a woman in a refrigerator that her death oh. sort of serves the purpose of, you know, her, her male counterpart and just serves the plot and pushes it forward. And I kind of hem and haw about it. And I say, maybe yes, maybe no, <laughs> because there's a woman also involved in the plot. But I am wondering with some of these adaptations that are not strict Jane Eyre adaptations, but they're changing things up, whether the Bertha or Bertha Standa needs to die. And in this case, I almost feel like she didn't need to. Like, Jane goes to all this effort to bring her body out, and then she doesn't survive. And I don't know why. I mean, is it just she was so weakened anyways, and then she was without life support for however long it took for a rescue crew to come? We're told Jane nearly dies, but we're not told why. (laughs) So I think if one may have answered the other, but, man, what if – what if something could have happened, but instead she's brought out and then it's it's all for naught and, and she's killed off anyways. I don't know. Do you feel like she needs to die? You know, I wish nobody would die in general. <laughs> Thank you. Know. That was very deep. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of the logic of the romance story that uh, we live in a very monogamous culture. And so she would only be a roadblock to Jane, therefore she must yeah. die. Because they can't just work it out and split amicably or something, or she can't wake up and be like, what monster you've become, but not as much of a monster as my brother. So I, unfortunately, I think this is another example of cleaving towards an, uh, an uncritical uh, storytelling that, you know, if there's no use for a character, ah, just kill him. Yeah, I forgot that Jane totally takes a... A poker from the fire and yes. wax Richard. Uh, so she certainly has agency. I, again, and, and I don't know. I mean, obviously I can't ring McKenna up on the on the phone and ask her, but I sense some connection with I Walked with the Zombie because Betsy loved Paul so much that she wanted to do whatever she could to save his wife because she knew that he loved his wife still. And so I wonder if that's just like what she's doing right here. That's like the physical embodiment is that she loves Edward. She knows Edward loves Isabel. And so she's going to try to save Isabel. So it's honorable on Jane's part. But yeah, I I do wish, I guess, that Isabel had kind of survived. And and I wonder if there's ever going to be an adaptation where where Isabel or Bertha survives and and just see what that is. But, you know, I guess that people would be upset. Mm -hmm. They demand her death. Yeah. Are there any other thoughts? Concluding thoughts? We could do concluding thoughts. I do have to go through my rubric Ah, which yes. could help us with the uh, concluding thoughts. But anything, I guess, on the plot and the the ending and, and all of that. You know, I think plot-wise, it is, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, it is a very solipsistic story, um, mm-hmm. which makes the kind of big reveals at the end all the more, uh, 
I don't know, complicated or weightless. The fact that there is this universe of drama going on that we're only privy to at the very end. And then that kind of falls apart under scrutiny. Even the slightest scrutiny is, uh, is just strange. And it makes you think like, why was this the version of the story that was told? The ultimate movie reference that I will make that I was planning to make was to that uh-huh. George Clooney movie, The Descendants, where, uh, which follows a similar track as those final revelations where his wife is in a boating accident, falls into a coma. And when that happens, he learns about all of this. Uh, I think she was having an affair with him, uh, which he did not know about before her accident. So he's kind of this, uh, very limbo like conflict where, you know, he loves his wife and he's terrified for her, but he's found out that she, she was unfaithful. And so, mm. which isn't to say that it's any kind of cosmic justice, but it, it kind of reminds me of this scenario where it's like, or uh, basically how you were describing it and the questions you were asking, it makes me think that there was something more interesting that could have happened where how much about uh, her relationship with Mason did Rochester know about? Yeah. And would that have, you know, affected their relationship at all? Unfortunately, again, the way the story is told, it's just not about that. Unfortunately, that stuff is just a lot more interesting than the story of a young girl who comes to New York with the dreams of being an artist, faces no obstacles, and becomes an artist at the end. Yeah, and I was just thinking we we know nothing of the circumstances of how she got shot. Like, right. Did she leap in front of a bullet for Rochester? Was it a mugging gone wrong? Yeah, there are just a lot of questions. And maybe when McKenna was writing, she's like, we don't need to know that. But I think yeah. it would have made something very, like, more intrigue, almost adding to it. Yeah, and I get that storytelling instinct to be like, well, you can't explain everything. You have to leave some things up to the, the reader's interpretation. But in that case, then I'm just going to have to go with a Punisher 2004 scenario where uh, her whole family was murdered in Tampa and only Rochester survived. Oh, my gosh. I guess, yeah. There you go. Lovely film. You know, I do like that film, actually. I see. No further comment. Yep. (laughs) You and I differ on many things. Okay. So we're going to go through this rubric. Now, it's going to be easier for me than you, but I think that you will be able to add some things in. So if you need, I can give some background. First of all, do you feel like there's a gothic aspect to this graphic novel? Uh, The spooky? (sighs) It's really the door. Yeah, the door and maybe Magda, maybe maybe the fireside chat. That's kind of. But other than that, I mean, no, I think it was really stripped of all the the aesthetics. uh, And it was obviously going for a certain atmosphere, but I don't think they quite achieved that. Absolutely. Yeah, there. And that's, of course, one of my favorite aspects. I love gothic romances. Yeah, the door was really it. And it was more of a mystery. You didn't have the the ghostly laughing that Jane often hears. She Uh does see a man at one point on that floor who it was the physician coming to visit Isabel. Um, and Magda's sometimes creepy, but other than that, uh, there's not too much on. There was something, her outburst, which is, I guess, after the, why do I keep forgetting her name? The Blanche Ingram character. It's because she's Eliza. (laughs) She made zero impact (laughs) on me. But she has this, Jane has this outburst of, what's going on? Why were you gone? What's on the third floor? All of that, which reminds me of the Star Trek episode when um, Janeway is also yelling at the, the hologram all uh-huh. of a sudden. Okay, so not much. Do you feel like Jane is relatable? Uh, 
Wow. Yeah, this Jane, is she relatable? I guess not just because I would not make the decisions that she made. <laughs> I, I would agree. Yes, I think that she does make some troubling decisions. And I we all, listen, we're fallen human beings. We make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But also, if you continue to make the same mistake and there are other people telling you, hey, maybe don't make the mistake, then you need to kind of check yourself. Yeah. Was there an intimacy between you and Jane? So you as a reader and Jane? Uh, no, and I think that is uh, speaking to that issue before of her voiceovers and the way she talks, the way she's characterized. You know, you get a sense for what's going on in her head, but it's often very reflective of actions already happening that are already very visible. So when she says that she's fine in the bar, we not only see her mirror reflection where she is clearly not fine, but then her voiceover says I wasn't fine. So it's just it's just a lot of redundant information that kind of pushes me away a little bit. Speaking uh, to the the Brechtian aspect of the comic book. I would agree. There is no intimacy between Jane and me. Her, <laughs> I can just, you just go on, prattle on everything and I just say, <laughs> oh yeah, I agree. This, this makes my job real easy. Okay, her character and moral aptitude. So the five qualities I look at are reverence, faithfulness, her awareness of responsibility, her veracity, and goodness. Reverence I always take in terms of religiosity and there was no religion here whatsoever. Right. So we can, we'll say no, really. Reverence, she doesn't have any towards family. And yeah, faithfulness, I would say she has it, especially to Adele. Yeah. And borderline to Edward, but she's also ready to ditch him once he brings Eliza home. Um, her awareness or, of responsibility, again, I think Adele and, and the reason why she doesn't take another job is because she cares for her. So I think that's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, her veracity, her truthfulness. What do you think about this? I don't know if I know what that means fully. <laughs> I would just say, is she a liar? Oh, okay. Is she, you know, authentic? Is she kind of being true? What she says and what she does are hand in hand, I would say. Yeah, I, I would suppose so. She's she's reliable. If I had to entrust her to return a late library book or something, I'd probably go with her. My only issue is that given the chance, she does not tell Mason and she does not tell Adele that Isabel is still alive. Mm-hmm. And I understand the position she was in, but you can tell that she's guilt-ridden with that. And that's one of the things that she talks to Edward about is like, why are you lying to them? So you see it in there, but I'm sorry that she didn't tell them. But perhaps it wasn't her place. Uh, and then her overall goodness, would you say that she's more or less a, a good a good person? Yeah, I mean, there's literally no bad qualities to her, so I guess by default she is a good character. <laughs> literally none. Okay. Uh, the childhood scenes, who are the most important people in her life? Well, uh, we don't really have any. So then my follow-up question is, how do we understand what she's gone through and what type of person has made her? Well, again, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an unfortunate situation. And then who is the Helen Standen? I would say that's probably Hector, but again, she doesn't learn too much from him. No. We've talked about her relationships with uh, Adele and Fairfax is non-existent, which is Magda. And we don't see anything 
Yeah, some things we don't see. We don't see her returning to her home, so she's gone. There's no, like, making up or reconciliation there. And we also don't see any of the, the Sinjin Rivers situation, so she doesn't flee Edward, go somewhere else, and then return. We talked about relationship between Jane and Edward and whether that love is believable. Uh, conflict that tears them apart, is that believable? Which is basically the the lie about the wife. I guess it's believable. Do you believe it, that that causes a schism between them? I kind of thought that the schism was more the Eliza thing, but that was, yeah. I don't know. It happened so quickly because it was the Eliza and then the home invasion. Right, <laughs> then so the I wife. All, yeah. Yeah, it was all one thing, I suppose. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that would, I mean, the whole thing is so sketchy that, like, why would that put you over the edge? Yeah. Well, three months in a house alone with a housekeeper that doesn't talk to you and a child, I guess you start thinking about things a lot and really dwelling. And she's 18. So I feel like any – I mean, she's a child. So anyone is just going to, like, blow things out of proportion and be very dramatic. And that whole situation is dramatic to begin with. So, of course, the slightest provocation is going to, you know, send her over the edge and, like, this is too much. Okay. Can this adaptation stand alone, or do you feel like you should read Jane Eyre in order to appreciate it? I think you should absolutely read Jane Eyre before you can appreciate it, because I think that was the question that I had rattling around in my brain the whole time, is that, like, (laughs) this is just, like, this will only make sense to somebody who has read the book and wants to see what a modern-day version uh, would be, one of many, I assume. Because as a standalone story, it's just... There's just, uh, there wasn't really anything there for me to kind of sink my teeth into. Yeah. And I think maybe you could give the age gap the benefit of the doubt, knowing yeah. that, oh, there's a reason behind it. <laughs> Otherwise, I think without it, it's it's a bit uh, troubling. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, you can use it to appreciate it, but it also may frustrate the heck out of you. So. Right. So then, of course, my final question, well, I have two questions, but is it the spirit of Jane? Does it have the spirit of Jane or the law of Jane? From my perspective, it seems like it has the law and not the spirit. Really? Well, I, I assume that, like, perhaps the story structure is intact, but I'm not really getting a sense for what the original character was on the page or, or how, how you've described her. Seems just different like this is just a different character and a different conflict i don't know okay i would go the opposite way and say it was the spirit and not the law Mm -hmm. would you recommend this that's my final question uh probably not i mean it is a unique (laughs) uh tale because like i i used to have this book physically and it's a very nice volume it's very slim and it was hardcover i had to give it away unfortunately last year um Ooh, did you hear that thunder? Anyway. I did. I thought it was you heavy breathing, but yeah, <laughs> the, the thunder did come through. And so it's a it's a nice piece, I guess, if you're an elite Rosh McKenna completionist, as I aspire to be. But as a story, I think that, uh, I don't know, I, I assume there are more powerful romance stories in comics. I haven't read any, but I am aware of some titles that I need to check out. And I don't, I don't know if this is really, uh, if this would really do it for anyone who isn't looking at it as a kind of writing exercise. Yeah, yeah, I would, like I said, I, I liked it a bit more the second read through, but I do find it to be a pretty weak story. 
And I, I think if you are a Jane Eyre fan, that you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I still think that the art is really beautiful. And, you know, if you can read it for – you've read it for free, didn't you, on Amazon Prime reading? Yes. If I cancel that subscription within 30 days, then I'll have read this book for free. Oh, my gosh. I hope you remember. I know. So, you know, it's worth a little, I think, a read-through if you're, like, desperate, but yeah. <laughs> if you've read everything else. If you've read all other Jane things. Well, I, I would say that, you know, after the break, that the next thing I will heartily recommend, oh. but it also is, it's manga. So that's not going to reach everyone because I think people, some people have this really strange rejection of you know anime and manga without even having given it a shot i'm still <laughs> trying to kind of piece through where that comes from but it's like super worthwhile but anyways that's that's the next half you know what i am so happy that you came on the show well i'm happy that you're happy <laughs> and i found it amusing when i asked if we were still on because i basically volunteered you i gave you a very short deadline and you said that you were actually prepared this time. Yes, not like the last <laughs> Which time. Which I was we... appreciative of. But no one, unless you watch or listen to BTO, will understand what that means. That's but, right. Yes. But thank you thank you very much for coming on and, and reading this and very quickly coming on this show and answering all these questions. Thank you for having me on. Uh, for those, again, who have not kept up with the Stella podcastic universe, I suppose it's been established that she and I don't always agree on anything and perhaps <laughs> disagree on everything. So it was uh, it was a nice change of pace yeah. that we could uh, we could see each other's experiences on this one. It's true. I think even you had recently said we have to break this curse, didn't you? That would be nice, I think. Did we break it? <laughs> I, I think I'd like to break it. In a way that we both like the thing. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> Just like, yeah. Well, I guess we'll we'll see. We'll see when next comes out. Do you think, now this is a very personal question, do you think you'll ever give Jane Eyre a shot? You know, I always wanted to see the 2011 film adaptation, but that that director recently was accused of uh, sexual misconduct, so oh, I guess... No. <laughs> I'm out of luck, so I'll have to uh, catch up on Dear Reader to see what might sound interesting. Because, you know, I mean, it is obviously a, a classic piece of literature. I am very behind on my classical literature, despite being an English major. <laughs> um, so oh we'll see. Oh, dear. Well, as we close out, would you like to tell the people where they can find you? Like, I'd love to. You can find me on With Eyes East if you want to hear some chatter about uh, Asian movies and culture. Has trended mostly Korean as of late, but that just seems to be the way of things uh, in terms of what's popular out there. But my main gig is a podcast called Questions We Don't Have Answers with uh, comic book superstar Donovan Morgan Grant. Uh, where we talk about social issues posed in the form of a question. And Stella herself has graciously graced us with her presence multiple times, a fraction of the amount of times we, we have asked or pined for her appearances, but Please. even still. <laughs> 
and we talk about our profit all the time. So if you want more Stella in your life, check out QNoAnswers.com. Thank you. Yes, I'm trying to, listeners, eagerly get back on there to do a commentary on a horror film. <gasps> and we have such a short time <laughs> left to do it because it has to be done in May. Yes. But, yeah, so we, we'll, we'll see about that. To but, be continued. Yes, indeed. Thank you again. You're welcome. I know, I, <laughs> I've never been satisfied with that as a response to thank you, so I will say thank you instead. Okay. <laughs> well, it's time for a break, and I will return by myself, and I'm going to go from the west all the way over to the east and talk about manga classics Jane Eyre. Your white privilege. What is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say I that? Think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan. Are we trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names? No number? Just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the biggest that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <laughs> Questions we don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too. But I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as Can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. (laughs) (laughs) Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers. We didn't even talk about Japan in this one. I think we did well. (laughs) The show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on iTunes and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com. I just hope it's not boring to listen to. Like, oh my god, they're not going anywhere. Truly, they don't have answers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can also mention more Star Trek episodes. (laughs) Welcome back. So as I said, we are now in the Far East with manga classics Jane Eyre. Art by Sunako Lee. Story adaptation by Crystal S. Chan. The cover is of, well, a manga or anime-looking Jane Eyre. She's got her updo. She's got her old-fashioned dress. Her hand is on her her chest. And you have Thornfield Hall in the distance, and she's out in the wood. If I were to just read the back cover here, as an orphan child, Jane Eyre is expected to be humble and grateful, but her wild spirit will not be tamed or broken despite the abuse she endures. As an adult, Jane finds her soul's match in the brooding Mr. Rochester, but their love is not enough to overcome the dreadful secret hidden within the very walls of his estate. 
Charlotte Bronte's classic tale of morality and social criticism takes on an entirely new life in this manga classics adaptation of Jane Eyre. Experience this immortal saga of passion and defiance in the face of adversity with stunning artwork that captures the gothic glory of Thornfield Hall, the rugged charm of Mr. Rochester, and the fiercely independent essence of Jane Eyre herself. I really don't need to get into the plot synopsis because this literally is Jane Eyre. It is broken down into 10 chapters, so I'll at least tell you what goes on in each of those chapters. So chapter one is all at Gateshead, chapter two at Lowood School, chapter three we enter Thornfield and it ends with the discovery that Rochester is the man who fell from his horse. Chapter four, we're still in Thornfield. It ends after Jane saves Rochester from his burning bed and he holds her hand while thanking her for his life. Chapter 5, Thornfield again. We've got the parties, Blanche Ingram, of course, and it ends with Mason's arrival and the arrival of the gypsy woman. Chapter 6, Thornfield again, revelation of the gypsy, the attack on Mason by somebody, and it ends with Jane saying that she has to return to Gateshead to visit her ailing aunt. Chapter 7, she's now at Gateshead. We see the death of her aunt. She returns to Thornfield. There's the proposal, wedding preparations, and the chapter ends with Bertha ripping the wedding veil and Jane initially thinking it's a dream, but waking up and realizing it was not a dream as she looks down upon the shredded veil. Chapter 8, still at Thornfield, the non-wedding, the revelation, and then it ends with Jane leaving Thornfield Hall. Chapter 9, we get to see Jane with the Rivers family, and it ends with, I'll call it the non-proposal from Sinjin to Jane. And then in Chapter 10, we finish up with the Rivers. She flees, she goes to Ferndine, and it ends with Jane and Rochester getting married and holding their newborn son. So if I just break this down between pros and cons of this manga, I'll begin with the cons because I was almost hard-pressed to find any. I think people are going to immediately judge it and not give it a chance because it is manga. I think, I'm not sure actually what it is, but manga and anime... People seem to, if they hear those words or they see an image from it, immediately just brush it off and feel like it's not worth their time as an art form, which puzzles me mainly because those same people may enjoy animated films, you know, like Disney films. And so I feel like it's not too far of an extreme to go from one to the other. I also know that some of these people are going to be feel put upon because they're reading from right to left and that will be you know troubling to them but I or even just reading a comic to be honest because that you know takes some practice as well to figure out how the the panels are arranged and and where you go I feel like if you come from a comic background, reading manga is not that different. It does take some training. You can't just leap into it because reading manga for me takes a bit longer. I'm I I have sped up more because I read the whole series of Maid Sama and so reading all of those kind of trained me to 
do it a bit quicker. But when I first started, because I think the Garden of Words was the first manga I ever read, like it, it took me a while just because you have to be really intentional and you're doing something opposite of what you are accustomed to. But that almost makes it even more of a special experience because of that intentionality and really paying attention to what you are doing and spending time in those panels with the words with the images and I think you get more out of it and you know it's not a slog I I think that if you like what the story is then you are going to come prepared and be open-minded so that's just going to be a con just people are just going to brush it off without giving it a chance Another con, which is a bizarre con, but all the characters look super cute. I mean, Grace Poole's described as older and unattractive by Jane, but even she is portrayed as cute. I was expecting her to be a bit haggard, and I don't even think she's mentioned as someone who frequently indulges in alcohol, but I just thought, uh-oh, she's going to look a bit rough, as as many of the visual adaptations portray her as, but no, she's just, she's still a cute character. The only person who looks rough, of course, is Bertha. She looks just insane. But I think Lee, the artist, does a good job of distinguishing between uh, the cute identifiable people and the beautiful identifiable people. There are slight changes to the face and the eyes and more distinct changes, of course, to the hair and clothing. We know that beauty is a theme that pops up in Jane Eyre. So there is a difference between Jane that I find very cute and I would say still pretty in this adaptation and then Blanche Ingram when she appears. Edward is handsome, I feel like, more so than he has any right to be. And Lee does make Sinjin fairer than him, even in, you know, in his hair and, and his facial features. So he able to distinguish those two. And Mrs. Fairfax is a cute older lady. So even though it sounds like a bunch of pros, it's just a con because <laughs> this particular art style just makes everyone seem really cute. You just don't get a good idea of who these people are in in the source material or what they should look like. And I guess my final con is just that the gothic feel is absent. The, the sense of dread and foreboding. I, I don't really get a sense of that. I think, again, it goes to the cuteness. <laughs> just because you can draw Thornfield Hall and something creepy going on. But you're also looking at, you know, this cute Jane Eyre manga style. Wondering what's up. And you're like, oh look at that. She's nervous. There's a little sweat drop on her cheek. So it's just the nature of things. But let's get to the pros because there are certainly more of those. This is the most faithful adaptation that I have seen, period. And in this limited series as well. It includes nearly everything that could be put down visually. Some of Jane's internal musings or moments of the novel discussing the countryside aren't included, obviously. And it's got good pacing. So, you know, you go from a 600-page novel down to this. It's masterfully done, I have to say. This comes from the back of the manga. 
strengthening the conflict of the plot. Manga are meant to be interesting and enjoyable. To keep readers interested, I included a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. For example, in chapter 7 of the manga, Jane and Mr. Rochester are about to get married, which seems like a cheerful occasion leading to a happily ever after ending. To add an element of mystery and suspense, I wrote a scene where Jane's wedding veil was torn in half during the night. Who did this? Is it a warning of the misery to come if Jane and Mr. Rochester wed? I purposely added this foreshadowing so readers would be curious and want to continue turning the pages in order to find the answers to these questions. Because the original story is quite interesting, I only had to make some minor changes to pacing. For example, at the end of the chapter 3 in the manga, I did not want to end things with Jane discovering that the man she'd met on the road was actually Mr. Rochester. This chapter ending would be too dull for a manga. I decided to borrow some dialogue from the next chapter in the book, with Mr. Rochester asking Jane about magical creatures and bewitching this horse in order to create a stronger impression of their encounter and to build the tension between them. The author goes on to talk about uh, the first-person narration. So Jane Eyre is written in first-person perspective, which means that it is told from the point of view of a single character. This technique allows readers to have a strong understanding of Jane's experiences since the narration conveys not only the facts of the story, but also Jane's thoughts and feelings about the events which are taking place. In writing the adaptation, I worked hard to keep this feature by incorporating narration which would convey Jane's perspective directly to readers, much as Charlotte Bronte did when writing the original novel. One drawback to first-person perspective is that readers can only learn information that the narrator also knows. For example, the only information which Jane, and therefore the readers, learn about Mr. Rochester's first marriage is what he tells her. In order to be faithful to the original novel, the adaptation could not provide flashbacks or other information about the relationship between Bertha and Edward Rochester, even though I am sure there is an interesting story to tell about them. If you want to think about the other side of this relationship, I highly recommend the novel Wide Sargasso Sea by John Rice. The novel is a prequel to Jane Eyre written from the perspective of Bertha Mason, which tells the story of how she met and married Mr. Rochester. It deals extensively with the racial and gender inequality of the early 19th century and was one of many reference books I reviewed while working on this adaptation. So unlike Jane, there is a lot of that first-person narration coming through, whether it is thought bubbles or narration boxes from Jane. So it keeps that intimacy between Jane and the reader. You get to see as well as hear the feelings of the characters, whereas you may be guessing a great deal within the novel, but here the storyteller makes judgment calls as to what characters are feeling and when they may be feeling it, and you see it. So, for example, I've spoken of the importance of Edward holding Jane's hands after she saves him from his burning bed. And here Chan makes this a catalyst of their progressing relationship. And Lee shows Jane's feelings with the blush, which is one of my favorite things in anime and manga, blush on the, on the faces, and the thumping heart that you also see. Some may interpret that this relationship is a slow burn relationship with intermittent moments of passion or emotional openness, sort of like a sinusoidal graph. But here I feel like there's this interpretation that it's this big moment for Jane and Edward where they have a spark of connection, or Jane does at the very least, and then everything else builds upon that. So it's sort of like a, a straight line, and then all of a sudden it, it pops up and starts going upward in the y-axis 
There are moments where I don't know what Edward is thinking or doing in the novel, and I think that they're made plainer here with his facial expressions, maybe a drop of sweat on his cheek, but not completely transparent. I think there's still some wiggle room of interpretation, but I just like that they make these choices. The storyteller does, the artist does. They make a choice of this is what that person is feeling. And it's an interpretation. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. But I just like that they they make that leap. Because mangas and graphic novels and comics rely upon interactions between people, the pace is swift because of all the conversations. And like I said, there's narration and thought bubbles for Jane, but they aren't as ponderous as some may believe they are in the novel. Because of course, there are those sweeping passages of her considering something or talking about the countryside. We don't have those necessarily here, but we do get to see some of those visual treats that she talks about. We see key physical differences between characters that may only be hinted at in the novel or may not come across in other visual media. Of course, we know of the size and age difference between Jane and Edward, but I was struck in this read of the difference between Jane and Helen. They always seem like contemporaries in my readings and children that are cast, you know, even if, well, if Helen even exists in a visual adaptation, they seem like they're probably the same age as children often do. It's just sometimes unclear to tell how old a child is, but here it's clear that Helen has a couple years on Jane, and I think this is really fitting given their relationship and how Jane looks up to Helen the fact that Helen is wise and at least to a religious extent but just wise beyond her years and now you kind of see that physically something that I noticed here perhaps made more prominent or just something I thought about more is the relationship between Helen and Miss Temple they seem to be equals in Jane's eyes for example the discussions that they have within Miss Temple's office that go over Jane's head, but she's just happy to be there. Miss Temple showing more care and concern for Helen as if, almost as if she were her own daughter. Now this could be narrator bias since we see these moments through Jane's eyes and we don't see Miss Temple with other people because Jane's not with other people. She's just with Helen. But I think Miss Temple sees something special in Helen and Helen, like Christ, is a natural people person to whom people gather unbidden so that's just something I pulled out from this adaptation something that struck me uh, was the prominence of the cat which to be honest I don't even remember in the novel I'll actually read from the author again about that but it makes sense for a Japanese interpretation to bring it out a bit more since uh, the Japanese I think prefer cats to dogs mainly because of their home sizes that they're smaller so of course having a smaller animal makes sense so working with Sunako Lee, this is the third manga where I've worked with Sunako Lee. She is a cat lover. Keeping that in mind, I made sure I included a cat whenever I had the opportunity when adapting the novel into manga. Even if the cat was only just mentioned in the original novel, I made sure it had a bigger part in the final manga scene. This is just one example of some of the things that she and I did to make the manga more interesting. In the novel, Adele is a French orphan. Her main language is French, so to let our English readers know that she is speaking in French, Sunika Lee and I decided to use English in the double line balloons. She also goes on to say that 
when Sunako Lee designed the character of Mr. Rochester, she had noticed that my husband's stature and hairstyle was similar to how the novel described Mr. Rochester, so she used him as a reference when drawing. Another thing I noticed from this read and from this adaptation is how important and how comedic the scene is where Jane is saying she has to go to Gateshead and there's a squabble over money. Now, first off, it actually is just funny when you see it and read it in this way. It's not serious necessarily in the adaptations that I've seen, but none have quite had this read to it and the back and forth him trying to take the money back and then he just wants to see it and she doesn't trust him is just really fun and it's made dramatic because the word balloons get into you know shouting basically and then hit some of the the drawings are really creative classic manga really popping through the proscenium of a classical literature adaptation like he's got these star eyes and refusing my request give me five pounds jane and she says no not even five pence just let me look at the cash no sir you are not to be trusted that whole scene is just i don't know it's really comedic and when I read it in the source material, I feel like you can kind of get a sense that these two are opening up and having a fun time with each other. But this was, like I said, probably the funniest adaptation or the funniest interpretation of it that I've seen. It's also a really important scene because you see an Edward that is free from a lot of his trauma. He's having fun with someone he cares about. And in a way, I feel like this may be the true Edward. If Edward came with no baggage and and didn't have that past, this is what he would be like. And while he seems free from some of his past trauma, I think there's also a test here for Jane to see what she does in the way of over when he overpays her. Because someone like Blanche would have taken all of the pounds that he offers her, even though it was more than she has earned from her time there as, as her job. But Jane adamantly refuses and she takes a loss instead. And I think that that's a huge moment for him. She passes the test and he also, again, just sees that stark contrast between Jane. Jane and Blanche. After the revelation of Bertha, something again that I, I considered while reading this is when he was describing Bertha, he says, The honeymoon over, I learned my mistake. The bride's mother was mad, not dead as I had supposed. Her younger brother was a mute idiot. Worse, my wife's nature was entirely alien to mine. Her mind common and low, her temper violent, her vices worsened. She grew intemperate and unchaste. And I wondered, is Bertha mad here or is she just not a good person? Or, in the vein of Rebecca, is she a progressive woman at that time and that just made people uncomfortable and so... She's clearly wrongheaded because of the things that she's doing. I don't know. But it's just something that obviously when he says that the the mother was mad and mental illness does run in the family, then okay, so probably his wife is mad. But just the fact that, you know, her vice is worse and she grew intemperate and unchaste. I mean, maybe she is like Rebecca and she just is like free-willed, a quote-unquote feminist. She's doing what she wants. And obviously at that time, that's a no-no. And 
shouldn't be sleeping around with people. And so people looked down upon her. And obviously, you know, her or belief systems of Rebecca or maybe of Bertha don't match up with mine. But also cultural, you know, cultural shifts now. I just wonder if, well, what if she wasn't mad, but it was just her lifestyle that made people uncomfortable? I don't know. Sinjin in this adaptation seems the coldest here in all I've seen of him. He also condemns Jane to a certain extent, and I wonder if that's fair. You know, how can he know God's journey for Jane? I mean, he probably barely knows. Well, none of us know what God's journey is for us. We can only hope and pray and ask for guidance and everything. But it's just interesting that he he very much uh, is judging her for her actions. But she feels like that's not her path. So I don't know why he feels like he can tell her what her path is. The implication at the end of this manga actually is that he is persecuted in India and perhaps martyred, which is not necessarily a read that I ever got, but I think it's logical that you could get that now because why does Bronte end with the thing that she says? And the quote, he calls out to God, surely I come quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. And that he's unmarried, never will be wed now. He has sacrificed himself to his great work. His glorious son hastens to insetting. I guess when I saw that he sacrificed himself to his great work, I always saw that maybe he got sick or just being over there for years and he died of old age or, yeah, I guess health considerations. That's kind of what I thought. But the fact that the image there of him kneeling and praying and a couple people throwing rocks at him, that, again, that's a choice, right? That's a pretty bold choice to make that maybe Sinjin was actually martyred over there in India. So I think to end this here, at least in, in talking about this adaptation, I want to go back to a question that Professor Allen asked, and I, I mentioned in the first part, about whether Bertha is a woman in a refrigerator. And that was a little while ago. And I feel like I said yes and no since she had to die, as as we know, in order to further the plot. But it furthers the plot for both Edward and Jane. And so I wonder if it can be a technical woman in refrigerator since it's mostly, it should be anyways. Actually, it shouldn't be, but it is furthering the progression of the male character. But watching her death go down here, I wondered if a woman could be in a refrigerator if she is the agent of her own demise. Because in this adaptation, and this might be true of of many adaptations really, but this just is the one that I'm, I'm really thinking of. Because again, that intentionality of this particular medium and really being within this work has brought up different questions that I haven't thought about but she she wasn't pushed she didn't fall she leapt she took matters into her own hands and who can say who can say why she did this because it certainly wasn't you know I'm this is mercy for you Edward so you can be with Jane it potentially was punishment she leaping to her death and Maybe she thought that Edward would die in the blaze. I don't know. Or she knew that he still cared for her in some capacity and this would be a punishment to him. Or she's just mad. 
and she leapt to her death. But I can a woman in a refrigerator be a woman in a refrigerator if she has the agency to kill herself and so I wonder in this adaptation I would say no yes it does technically further the plot but because she is the one who killed herself and she wasn't taken like it was very active it wasn't passive I'm I'm gonna say no I'm gonna say no I think it's still very wishy-washy overall and it's still a yes and no answer but in this case I'm gonna say no I really don't even need to go through my rubric for this because it would basically be like restating the source material of the, well, just restating the source material. I will say, as you know, I have very openly said, and I understand that it's problematic, but I do love the edward pretending to be a gypsy and (laughs) causing a kerfluffle especially with blanche and just adding drama i find that to be a very fun scene but again i do recognize its problems there but it is done really well here and the author actually wrote about that which is funny because she did not talk about but when did this come out this manga came out looks like well, it says the second printing came out in 2019, uh, but just to say that I guess the author did not consider the problematic nature of that and appropriation and things like that. But in her, uh, at the very back, she talks about the advantages of manga over film and TV. There are some limitations when choosing the actors for the adaptation of a TV drama or movie. For example, in Chapter 19 of the novel, Mr. Rochester disguises himself as a gypsy fortune teller visiting Thornfield. In many film versions, either this plot was removed or a female actor was cast to play the part of a gypsy woman, so the audience could more easily believe that Mr. Rochester would be able to deceive Jane and the others with this trick. I have to say I've never seen an adaptation where a woman is playing the gypsy, so I'll have to find that. However, manga can easily portray Mr. Rochester dressed as a woman in a believable way because the differences between male and female appearances can be minimized in the drawings. This means that the manga adaptation can stay true to the original novel more easily than film when it comes to these types of plot points so i'm glad that it was included in this adaptation so back to my rubric i think as i was saying before i interrupted my thoughts with another thought i don't need to go through all that because this literally is jane Eyre, and it's got the spirit of jane and the law of jane i guess more so the law of jane but also really using the strengths of manga as well so i highly recommend it even if you're just maybe not sure about anime or manga i just have an open mind and and give it a chance especially if you love jane air the source material then this will i think give you incentive i think it'll be an easy read for you and if you are nervous about reading jane air because it's 600 plus pages and slow at times i will admit but you i don't know you love comics or manga or anime give this a shot because this is like you will get the sense of who Jane Eyre is and what Jane Eyre is from reading it. And then you won't feel like you're slogging through a 600-page novel. So absolutely, please give it a shot. Okay, 
As I wrap up, we have from the airwaves. So I have three comments from the website. First up is from Siskoid. He says, I thought you were going to withhold these versions for even longer. I don't know why. Always great to hear your thoughts and research on all these versions. Speaking of reviews, I thought you might enjoy my capsule review of the 2011 version. I've never seen the 1943. And this comes from him. So, quote, 2011's adaptation of Jane Eyre with rising star Mia Vasakowska in the leading role and Michael Fassbender as the damn peculiar, everyone's peculiar on planet Bronte except for Judy Dench's Mrs. Fairfax really Lord Rochester is the essence of gothic dressed up as a ghost story with frequent allusions to the world of fairies and goblins and strange happenstance the book and film use Jane's limited point of view which is not the same as a limited mind to create strangeness and fear the fuller picture, no less horrific, is something the audience puts together over time. And of course, it also serves as background metaphor for a young woman's inner turmoil. Jane is one of those pre-feminist figures that seems shocking in the context of when she was put to paper, insolent with the church, completely convinced that the soul transcends class and makes all human beings equal, and ambitious in her need to expand her horizons and create choices for herself. Jane airs grand, literate melodrama with bizarre characters and dark situations and the film captures that more than adequately using cinematic techniques like a chronological editing to heighten the mystery end quote i love that thank you for that that's that was great i mean you should have just done my review on 2011 there and then he wraps up as for the hamlet podcast i recorded the first episode just to see if it was doable and neither too long nor too short it worked but lies unedited and un produced for now but yeah it might show up when ryan's cheer cast next goes into interseason hiatus freeing up thursdays for a few weeks thanks for the encouragement yeah and siskoid if you ever want to talk sons of anarchy on your hamlet podcast then please consider me a willing participant because i'd love to talk some sons of anarchy which is an adaptation kurt sutter used hamlet as the model for that Next up from Chuck Coletta, I'm just diving into the episode and thought I'd pass on a bit of trivia. Peggy Ann Garner, young Jane, appeared as Betsy Boldface in a third season Batman episode titled Ring Around the Riddler, one of the first episodes to feature Yvonne Craig as Batgirl. I highly recommend seeing Garner's Oscar winning role in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn from 1945, an excellent film and novel. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, I can always rely on you, I think, to connect those those dots there and I will have to pull up that episode so I can see her in that and I've read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn but I've never seen it so that is certainly it's one of those that you've got to emotionally prepare yourself for so that's certainly I'd have to be in a a mind space a particular mind space in order to watch that I think since the the novel was not the most uplifting of novels and then finally from Eric, another highly enjoyable and well-researched episode. Incidentally, I recently saw a TV program with a Jane Eyre connection that might make for an interesting discussion. From the Agatha Christie series Marple, the 2006 episode by the pricking of my thumbs, based on one of Christie's Tommy and Tuppence novels, with Mace Marple shoehorned into the adaptation, spends a fair amount of screen time discussing a fictitious film adaptation of Jane Eyre among its subplots. In the episode, one of the
of the characters is a spoiled rich girl whose wealthy parents essentially bought her a film role, no less than playing Helen Burns in the new adaptation of Jane Eyre. It's odd the way the episode treats the role. The girl acts as though she's one of the stars of the film, though other characters dismiss her role as nothing more than a bit part, saying she only has one line in the movie. A severely diminished view of Helen Burns' role. Agreed. Although it could be justified that perhaps the makers of this film within the film deliberately reduced the character's screen time and importance because they were stuck with an actress who wasn't up to the task but had to keep her in the film because her parents were bankrolling it. During the town's premiere screening of the movie, we see the start of Helen's death scene, but just as Helen begins to deliver her dying speech, the screening is interrupted by the police and the spoiled would-be actress has her big moment <laughs> ruined. Whoopsies! They appear to have used a modified version of the poster from the 1944 Jane Eyre film with the names changed. Another oddity is that one of the townspeople refers to the Helen Burns role as Jane Jane's friend who dies of leukemia. I just had to wonder whether it was supposed to be the character getting the facts wrong or the episode screenwriters. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So another thing I'll have to add to my watch list and just from your description of it seems pretty zany and I'd love to watch that. Yeah, Jane's friend who dies of leukemia. I don't think it was leukemia, right? She definitely had tuberculosis or as I like to call it, consumption. But it's also interesting as you correctly point out that she's a bit part and just one line in the movie because as I have discovered in this limited series that Helen Byrne is perhaps one of the most important characters in Jane Eyre. So absolutely. Yeah, so thank you to everyone who wrote in and thank you to Chuck and Eric for giving me some stuff to watch that has fun trivia connection to Jane Eyre. One seeming more bizarre to the other. Though Ring Around the Riddler and the fact that it's a 60s Batman episode is probably going to be pretty bizarre as well. Okay, well that's it for me. And next time, I think we might be staying on the eastern side of the globe. See you soon. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network... Jane demands it. Go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to backgirl2oracle at gmail.com. Don't question it. And follow at Batgirl2Oracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book.
Okay. I imagine that's the uh, transition music elevator music. That is the transition music. Well, probably. Oh, I guess I can put a...